Regardless of the state of the science, though, from the moment that fluoridation was proposed as public policy, it has been controversial among a certain segment. And that segment is conspiracy theorists. Yes, but not only them. Pretty much all of the most excitable and suggestible citizens have been concerned, whether or not they're believers in other conspiracies. As this clip from an informative video by YouTuber and science educator Professor Dave notes, that very first test in Grand Rapids led to some very concerned phone calls from these folks. Starting around January 8, 1945, multiple calls to the director of the Grand Rapids Waterworks complained that because his department had added fluoride to the city's water, their teeth were falling out, their enamel was peeling off, and their gums were sore. Ironically, the waterworks had not yet begun adding any fluoride. The local newspaper had originally reported fluoridation would start in Grand Rapids in early January, but the start date for the fluoridation trial was actually January 25th, a full two weeks after these residents reported their imaginary ailments. And of course, there was the John Birch Society and broader anti-government right-wing conspiracy theorizing we discussed earlier, all of which culminated in the character of General Jack T. Ripper in Kubrick's masterpiece of Cold War satire, Dr. Strangelove. The action of the film is kicked off when the general goes rogue, sending nuclear bombers under his command on a mission to strike Moscow because... I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. Well, that's insane. I mean, it's not like the guy hasn't thought this all through, Unicorn. Jeez. It's incredibly obvious, isn't it? A foreign substance is introduced into our precious bodily fluids without the knowledge of the individual, certainly without any choice. That's the way your hardcore Kame works. You first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Yes, a, uh, a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness followed. Luckily, I, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. I can assure you it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women, uh, women sense my power, and they seek the life essence. I do deny them my essence. The fluoride controversy gradually died down, though it flares up again periodically. In fact, a friend of the show who will remain nameless is a kinda sorta anti-fluoride guy, who when prompted sent over some concerns and beliefs he has about fluoridation, which in the spirit of our 9-11 Willem UFO episodes... Check those out in the feed. The production is amateurish by our current standards, but the constant holds up. In the same spirit that we approached Willem's concerns about 9-11, we figured we would briefly address this unnamed friend's fluoride worries, starting with the warning on the back of your tube of toothpaste. I assume this is the one that warns you to call poison control if you ingest the toothpaste? Yeah, that's it. Now, in spite of the fact that fluoride in toothpaste is at a concentration 2,000 times higher than in fluoridated water, a bunch of sciencey blogs and studies tell us that even if you swallow the whole tube of Colgate, you won't die. On the other hand, you will get pretty fucking sick, thus the alert to call poison control. However, keep in mind, at some level, everything is toxic, including water. Yes, you can drink a toxic amount of water. Too much will cause the sodium in your body to drop to dangerously low levels, at least until your kidneys can filter it out. Low sodium makes your cells swell, including the ones in your brain, which can lead to seizures, coma, or even death. Of course, you're not likely to do this because it's uncomfortable and because nobody is that thirsty. 
But the point stands. Everything is toxic at the right dosage. Which is not to say that fluoride is not a poison at very low dosages. And in point of fact, fluorine gas, which is the vaporous form of the same element in fluoride, is just unbelievably deadly. Even a low-dose exposure causes burns on skin, for example. But of course, as any first-year chemistry student knows, sodium explodes on contact with water, but sodium chloride is table salt. The way a compound is formed, as well as its concentration, and the way you encounter it, all of it matters. There are some studies that have claimed to link water fluoridation to lower IQ in children. These studies, conducted in China and Iran, are problematic at best and are contradicted by other more recent studies that have shown no such effects. We don't want to get bogged down in the minutiae here, but suffice it to say, the evidence isn't particularly strong. Finally, we want to address a conspiracy theory that links Andrew Mellon, industrial magnate and founder of Alcoa, the aluminum company of America. The story goes that Mr. Mellon had a problem on his hands back in the 1930s, a huge amount of a toxic waste product from the aluminum manufacturing process. That is, of course, fluoride. But he came up with an incredible plan. Just sucker the public into letting him get rid of this fluoride by adding it to drinking water. Now, this whole scenario sets off our bullshit detectors from the outset. Right, no, no, turn, turn it, turn it a little bit. You gotta turn down the square. There's very little beyond people's intuitions. Not There's not enough voltage. Hold on. No, just put it in the other side. Put it. it serves as evidence for this particular... No, no, don't, 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 now, slowly this time, Chad, put the little thing, just hook it on there, hook it, just hook it's it. It's going to ground out that way. Ooh, we got it, we got it, we got it. We are now in control of this broadcast. <laughs> Here it is, Chad, we did it, we got it, we got him again every time with fearful. It's so easy to catch him, you just invite him over and tie him up. Well, you just tie him up or you intercept his broadcast through the atmosphere, Chad. You see how the, you know how the wavelengths, they bounce over the stratosphere and they go around the world? There's so much noise in his like show. And heated polemics. This should be heard. This is also the Finally, the signal is cutting through right here. It really is. Well, he needs he needs a little bit of he needs a little bit of assistance to make sure that there's a focus on what's really important. Yeah. You know, the truth has finally got to come through, Chad. It's got to come through. We got to cut through the noise of his ill-researched wreck. Research is a deadly slope. That's right. So do we have enough signal here to, to cut through the molasses? I think we're, it's it's holding. Let me look at my oscilloscope. Do not attempt to adjust your sets. Well, Chad, they, there is no radio anymore. You understand that? What? You, you have any understanding of how we were able to assemble this device to, un, to, to intercept this podcast? There's no dials anymore, Chad. It's a VPN? There's no dials. There's no antennas, Chad. And you quit fiddling with it because it doesn't do nothing. Oh, it's just a box. It's, it's one just of those a box, boxes. Chad. It's not really the whole internet. The world's knowledge has been distilled, Chad, into a nondescript black cube we put in our pocket. Now, if you're putting cubes in your pocket, that's between you and your pocket. We're the Chads, and we have inserted ourselves into your ear hole, and there's no way out. I dare you to try to take your earphones off, right? You can't do it. The ear hole is the toilet straight to the brain. Chad, I couldn't have said it any better myself. Look at the shape of the ear hole. It is designed to make things go in a spiral. That's right. And it's just like little ear turds go spinning around. and They just keep spinning. They just keep spinning. Whoosh, straight into the center of your, your brain center. Right to your uh, amygdala? Yeah. That's why we had to interrupt, dear listener, is he's fearful Jesuit is pooping in your ear hole. Yeah. I, it may already be apparent my name is Chad. And I'm Chad. And uh, we're we're part of a, a small crew. 
a small group of people that uh, really want the, the truth to be more apparent to people. A consortium. We've been uh, associates of the paranoid strain for, uh, you know, for a little while now, and uh, we, we find a way to uh, rebut. That means but again. Some of the, uh, the horse hookie. That paranoid tends to uh, disseminate the tiny ear turds. I looked up on Smilebox the other day. What is this fluoride nonsense all about? Right. And I was doing it just to get other people's opinion because I know exactly what I'm talking about, Chad. Yeah. Part of the problem here, Chad, is we've been led down this road by the U.S. government for generations. The, the fluoride was uh, was the first one. That was just the introduction. It's much bigger than that. Fluoride is the devil spunk, Chad. You know where it comes from? Spunk. Let me tell you a little bit about fluoride. Is it a is it a rock? Is it a haplotype? Chad. Is it a noble gas? Let's start from the beginning. Let, let's take a traditional debate approach here and try to come to understand the position of our opponent, fearful Jesuit. All right. Well, it's it's a public health necessity. It's for the greater good. It repairs your tooth enamel, keeps people's teeth from falling out. So why don't we put it in the water supply and everybody get a little bit of it? Make everybody healthier. It's not keeping my friend's teeth from falling out. They drop teeth all the time. That sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah. If what we're imbibing is supposed to have a positive effect on the human body, what do we call that, Chad? If it's a chemical we put in our mouth and we swallow it, what do we call that? Well, I mean, you you call it liquor? Call it medicine, Chad. Medicine. It's medicine. Yeah. It's medicine. And, you know, but you have to get a prescription for some fluoride toothpaste. It's, That's what I'm saying, Chad. Why do they just put it in the water? Have you looked on the back of your toothpaste, Chad? Have you read the fine print? I don't read fine print. If I recall, it says something to do with, you need to call the Poison Control Center if you eat this whole tube of toothpaste like my cousin Wilbur. Yeah. You put it in your mouth every night. You put it in your mouth. And I got family that eats that. They put it on crackers. Thickers and toothpaste. You remember old Long Neck Lenny? Yeah. He'd been eating toothpaste his whole life. Drive down the road with his head out the window because he couldn't fit in the car. And he's got that big lump on his throat because his thyroid's the size of a softball. Well, he's just like a giraffe. Well, where, how do you think that happened, Chad? Ah, fluoride. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, Charlie Chinstrap's been doing it for a long time, and he, he decided to quit. Why? Well, I, I think it might he might have got the goiter. How does he walk? My understanding, it does have a it does have an impact on testicular girth. I think there's worse stuff than that. So you're just going to roll over think, and take it? Is that what you're trying to say to me, Chad? You're just going to say, yeah, like, I'm "Hey, put whatever wanna, you want in my water. Oh, makes me feel good. Makes me docile." I just think I'm telling you, this whole fluoride in the water thing—it's one big fudge Wellington of a public policy procedure. Whew. <laughs> Here's what I'm here's what I'm gonna do. Here's what I'm gonna do. Right before before the batteries run out of this this gizmo that, that's uh, barely holding on to a charge here, I'm gonna turn back the clock, Chad. I'm gonna turn it back yeah. to the late yeah late the 1940s. The late okay. 1940s. Okay. America's coming out of the World War. Industrial Revolution has happened. We're one of the largest industrial powerhouses in the nation. Yeah. We need a lot of steel in, in the in the world. In the what did I say? Said, <laughs> America is the largest powerhouse in the nation. That's right. That's very Trumpy. We're the biggest U.S. that there's ever been, Chad, and the best. But let's go back, Chad. Let's okay, go okay. back. Nineteen, nineteen forty-three, early nineteen fifties. Oh, right. United States has got all of its industrial production capacity 
We got to do something yeah. with it. We got to build yeah. shit. We got to make the cities bigger. So what do we have? We've got industrialists, Chad, that want to expand their industrial empires. Yeah. Steel magnets. The coal. Railroad. Coal. coal. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a gentleman by the name of Andrew Mellon. Yeah. This man's last name was Mellon, Chad. Mellon, like a melon you eat. He made aluminum, Chad. He was an aluminum god. Oh, yeah. Back back in the early 20th century, this man, any, any Diet Coke can you were drinking back in 1939 was made by Mr. Mellon and his cronies. That's what drove Hitler crazy was Diet Coke. And the aspartame. Boy, but there's so much, Chad. There's so much for us to talk about. There's so many turds. We got to get out of these people's ears. Yeah. So he decides, go walk through his factory one day, Chad, and they got these barrels of shit along the wall. Yep. And the guys are saying, wait, what are we going to do with all this shit in the barrel? He's like, well, what's in the barrel? And they're like, it's something we can't, we can't get rid of it because it's toxic. Yeah. And we can't tell anybody we got it because then we're going to be labeled as some toxic polluter. Unfriendly. So, Chad, what do you suppose was in those barrels, Chad? Was it deodorant? Well, it could, it could be. You put that shit under your arm every day, Chad, to clog your pores and keep the sweat from coming out. But all that it's shit goes back up in your bloodstream, crosses the blood bank barrier. I have Alzheimer's once a week. I have it on demand. You want me to have it right? I'll have it right now if you want me to. Contiguous. Who the fuck are you? Get off of my TV yeah. screen. I hate you. I don't oh. Get out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't funny, Chad. That's really that's a sad state of things. All this stuff we're putting in our bodies. We're not putting in our bodies. The government's putting in our bodies, Chad. So he, Mr. Mellons, yeah. walks over to these barrels. He looks at them. You know what the label says on it? It says fluoride. What's fluoride? Isn't that a metal? Well, Is it, it's, a, it's a salt. It's a it's salt. A it's a metal. You can put it on your potatoes. It's a salt. It's a metal. <laughs> Tastes pretty good. Right? I mean, you know, especially the fluoride with the four flavors that come out that squirts out in a little thing and it makes a little spiral. That's pretty good, Chad. Oh, yeah. Put that on a vanilla wafer. Smucker's twist fluoride. Well, you you get the spearmint and you mix it with the vanilla on the cracker. You know, smart fuckers eat fart smuckers. <laughs> it's good stuff, especially when they mix it in the jar before you put it on your bread. Mm, what's that smell? Ooh, it's making my eyes water. <laughs> Give me the sweats. <laughs> I got the chili sweats, honey. Give me another piece of that toast. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's making a whole room steam up. So, Mr. Mel, back to Mr. Mel and Chad. Come on now, you're having Alzheimer's okay. on me again. Here's the thing. He's like, we got to get rid of this shit. We can't keep this here. It's going to kill everybody in this factory. So, what do they do? We, we got an inspection coming at the end of the decade. <laughs> so, Mr. Mellon pulls out his iPhone. Yes. Right? And he looks up. He's like, what, what could we possibly do with this shit that I got in my warehouse? Is it shaped like a melon? Is his iPhone shaped he like a small just melon? Li- no, he looks like a melon. He's got the head the He's- size of a melon. That's how he got that name. So he says, look, hey, you know His what? His whole family looked like melons. I read this article, just like Fearful Jesuit reading all his articles. I read this article says, fluoride may have a positive impact on the structure of your tooth enamel. Yeah. Did he pay for that article? Well, that's where it all Did starts circling back around, Chad. That's where these turds start spiraling in your ear. and I'm going to make them spiral. Were they having to disclose the funding for the research for the white paper? You're jumping ahead, Chad. You're jumping ahead. I'm trying to weave a narrative here okay. for the audience, Chad. You're asking questions. It's making me skip to Sorry. chapter seven. We're only on chapter two. That's right. Never interrupt a dream weaver in their work. Why don't I, why don't I be a dream <laughs> Why don't I be a smart ass? And instead of the government finding me for dumping this shit in the water, why don't I get yeah. them to pay me to dump yeah, this to shit dump it in, in the water? water? There you go. Oh, see what shit. happened, Chad? Oh. You see what happened? Oh, that's smart. Chad. If you can pass a law, you can make a lot of money. 
It's a true story, Chad. I can't make this shit up. You know how I know that's it's true? Bad, that's a bad image. It is. You know how I know this is true, Chad? Because you Where read, did it I read it on the internet. Smilebox, Chad. Smile, sorry, Smilebox. Chad, this is all over Smilebox. Chad, you should see the memes about this. Chad, they're very compelling. Are they funny? Chad, you don't seem to understand. That's not the reason we do memes, Chad. I thought memes was only for humor. No, memes are so that we can present ourselves, we can present a counterpoint humorously. And when you do that, you don't have to provide as much supporting information to convince your audience that you really know what you're talking about. Do you make it witty? They don't care, Chad. Oh, yeah. So he hires Mr. Gerald Cox, a researcher. Yeah. And guess where Gerald Cox works? At the Mellon Institute. Oh, yeah. So now we got a scientist to back up this ridiculous claim that if we if we poison everybody in the world, their teeth are going to be a little wider. A little wider. So what's Mr. Mellon do? It's like, let's do this. Like, I can't get rid of this shit. Why don't I become, hey, I'm going to be in charge of the U.S. Public Health Service, the PHS, as it was called back then, Chad. Mr. Andrew Mellon. Hot damn. The Aluminum King, Chad, is now the president of the U.S. Public Health Service. He hires Mr. Cox. Dr. Cox. Dr. Cox. Dr. Cox says this is great. This stuff is going to revolutionize dental medicine. So let's put it in the water supply. Everybody needs it. We got teeth falling out. We got we got people walking around without any teeth whistling because they can't talk. Iron in the corn for the pellagra. That's right, Chad. Don't even get me started on Roundup, Chad. There's so much that we imbibe. Roundup. This is why everybody's stupid, Chad. This is why we can't think for ourselves. This is why we need a little black box in our pocket so we can serve small box wherever we're at. Lead, BPAs, Roundup. It's all connected, Chad. PFAs, plastics, mercury. Oh, yeah. Delicious, delicious mercury. It's everywhere. In the shrimp, in the tuna. So let me tie this all up now, Chad. So he convinces through his political machinations. He decides we're now going to put water and he gets the he gets the endorsement. The U.S. Congress, everybody else involved. Yeah. You don't taste it. It's odorless. As much as I like to eat toothpaste on a Ritz cracker, Chad, let me tell you what it does to me. Yeah, tell me. And I didn't realize this until not that long ago. Yeah. I get headaches. Yeah. Chronic fatigue. Yeah. Dryness of the throat. Yeah. Frequent need to urinate, Chad. Yeah. I've got aches and stiffnesses in my muscles and my lower back. Yeah. I get spasms. Yeah. You ever had a spasm? Yeah. I get tingling sensations in my fingers, my abdominal pains. Yeah. My diarrhea, Chad. Yeah. I got the Hershey squirts all the time walking around. I got to wear rubber boots. Yeah. I'm dropping fudge wellingtons all all day. (laughs) You're fudge wellington. I didn't realize it, Chad. I eat a whole sleeve of crackers with toothpaste on it. I got to drop a fudge wellington in like 10 minutes. I didn't, I wasn't able to put two and one and together or one and one, whatever the hell it got put together. Yeah. Loss of mental acuity. Yeah. Depression. Yeah. Do you, do you know what all of that dementia, all that bad side effects, none of that is as bad as these ear turds. These ear turds, Chad, it takes the cake, Chad. They do. You can't even eat cake with ear turds. The ear turds are destroying the fabric of our society, Chad. People think they know what's going on, but they got ear turds. Yeah. Visual disturbances. Yeah. Temporary blind spots. Yeah. It's in the water, Chad. Yeah. It's killing us, Chad. Yeah. What do you use to boil crawfish now? Because the water's too dangerous. Urine works. Pepsi. 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 Mountain Dew. Sometimes a half urine and half Mountain Dew. <laughs> you almost don't need to spice it. I just wanted to paint one picture. One picture, Chad, of yeah. one compound that the government's releasing on us in the name of public health, Chad. But you know it's everywhere. It's everything. There's dozens of other chemical compounds that are out there. Everything. The sweeteners, especially the corny syrup, 
and the the Zycalol. Don't even get me started on this on these these sweeteners. Zachary, when I finished drinking that Bob Ross energy drink, my my head started spinning. Did you poop on yourself immediately? I dropped a fudge Wellington right there in the time saver. It was a happy accident. It's <laughs> a happy little accident right there, right there in the drugstore. Now, Chad, that's not the only thing we have to worry about. The stuff they're putting out there. What do you? That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the gateway drug. You know, I, I was reading something on my little black box about that, Chad. That it's in everything, Chad. The plastics, the chemtrails, the water we're drinking. Yep, the media that we're consuming. These made-for-internet streaming service movies. Well, let's talk about streaming for a minute, Chad. How many megabits you got, Chad? How many megabits you got in your house? 5G. You don't know. You don't know. You can't see them. Well, you can't see the megabits. They get loose, don't they? They're bouncing around right now, Chad. They got the wire fire in the air. The wire fire, you eat enough toothpaste on crackers and you start seeing it, Chad. You start seeing the Wi-Fi and God help you. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, Chad. It's bouncing around. It's going through your skull. How much concrete? Would it take to block a wire fire? There is no escape, Chad. We're awash in industrial effluent, in electromagnetic radiation, everywhere you go. It's a wall of sound. It's a wall of shit. It's a vibrating wall of shit. It's an agitated wall of shit, Chad, and you're walking through it every single day. (laughs) You can't escape it, Chad. You can try to escape it. You have no power to escape the control mechanisms of the deep state, Chad. Yeah. Once I read this story on Smilebox, Chad, I, I thought to myself, how can I get a clean drink of water? Yeah. You thought about that? Let's just say you get thirsty and you want to drink something without any of that shit in it. What do you do? Even if you drink your own piss, you're going to get it. You can't drink your own piss. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I'd like to see you try. <laughs> if you could plug your nose. Plug your nose. It takes a relatively uh, limber and acrobatic person to drink their own piss without a receptacle. I'm not talking about out of the fountain. You got your approach, drinking your own piss. I- I'm going to give that a B plus, Chad. Here's what I do. I go outside when it's raining and I open my mouth and I look at the sky. Oh. Now, I used to think this was the best way to get a clean drink of water. Yeah. But? But. Now the rebuttal. Very <laughs> What's that fresh, unadulterated water passing through, Chad? Dirty-ass clouds. Chemtrails, Chad. Ass clouds. Ass clouds, Chad. (laughs) Turd clouds. Chemtrails. It's passing through those wispy, billowy turds that the government's putting up there in their jet airplanes, Chad. To the layman, they're called chemtrails. Scientifically, they are known as ass clouds. That's right. Wispy little ass clouds going through my my pristine raindrop. The circle of life, Chad, it was clean. Gaia did what she was supposed to do. She cleaned my water. She made it proper, potable water for me to drink, and she generously dropped it on my face. But you didn't appreciate it. I didn't appreciate it because it's our fault, Chad. You didn't appreciate it. It's our fault. We let it happen. It's our fault. We didn't appreciate that water. Now it's mind control water, Chad. Mind control water. Now it's got them mind control chemicals from falling through them damn chemtrails. You can't do it, Chad. You can't have a clean glass of water anymore, Chad. It's not possible. No. You can't have a tall drink of water. You can't have a dark drink of water. <laughs> a, t- a tall, dark drink of water. You can't lazily sit back on your porch and drink some clean lemonade. You can't take a, a fresh, clean face cloth, dip it in your tall drink of cool water, and wring it out gently and wash your toes with it. Pat it on your forehead to ease your worried mind. You can't do it. Ease your troubles with it. It's the second that rag comes into contact with your forehead, you're immediately absorbing this industrial effluent by Mr. Melon passing through your melon 
That was why they were called the melons. It's all about putting that shit in the melon. In your, in your melon. That's it. That's they right. want to control your melon, yeah. Chad. Andrew Melon, Chad. Look it up on your little black box. Yep. The government's going to medicate us without our consent. Is that what we've been reduced to, Chad? What do you think vaccines are? Oh, don't even get me started. Did you up your polio vaccine lately? I did. I got a booster. You realize we're in the age of re-emerging diseases? We are, Chad. Not emergent. And we got diseases named after different animals. Cowpox. Monkeypox. You play Twister? Can't even play Twister anymore, Chad, without fear of catching monkeypox. I know. I was trying to get some pizza. I took the family over to Derpy Fools the other night to get some pizza. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's having a good time. Yeah. We're at Derpy Fools watching the animatronics sing at us. Yeah. Trying to eat my pepperoni pizza. Oh. And I feel something. I feel a, a waft. Oh, shit. A waft. You ever, you ever get an odd waft? In that bad motel I was staying in. Yeah. They, going down the stairs, there was a little box on the wall that would shoot out, like, fragrance. It would go, when you'd walk by. <laughs> Ooh. This feels like a contaminated waft. That was a waft. I don't, th- I don't think anything of it. I'm like, oh, well, that, was a, well, that was an odd waft. Yeah. I went back to eating my food, watching Derpy Fools up on the stage, make their little, uh, do their little song and dance. <laughs> and I'm like, but you know, it kind of stuck in my, my ear. It was like, a, like an ear turd. And so when I got home and I was listening, who's that doctor that comes on TV sometimes? Sanjay Poopa Goose. What was his name? Oh, I thought it was Dr. Feel. Doctor, maybe that's who it was. Dr. Feel. He's like, if you experience an odd waft, it might be a pox. It might be, it might be a virus. <laughs> now I've got all this agitation that I was in the presence of 72 other people drunk out of their minds trying to entertain their children at Derpy Fools. Yeah. And I might have caught something, Chad. I'm not feeling right. And I'm not talking about fluoride symptoms. This is something a little stronger. Yeah. So I need a booster, Chad. I need. Some, I don't know what to boost. You need help. You need friends. You need someone to lock you in a room and give you the Bob Ross and hide the Wellingtons. What's that Muppet that came on Richard Sniffums? What was his name? He, he had that funny dance. The purple one. Ookie, ookie, ookie. That's it, Richard Sniffums. <laughs> I feel like Richard Sniffums walking around, and everybody's looking at me funny because I got a, an odd gait. I think, can I see your smart mouth? You're not covering your smart mouth, are you? I can't, I can't breathe through those masks, Chad. Are you talking out of the side of your mouth? I, I could be. Chad, I'm afflicted. Where's your toe? Is it in your mouth? It's the viruses. It's the shit in the air, Chad. Yeah. You're going to get it inside. You're going to get it outside, Chad. Yeah. I invited Charlie Chinstrap over for some chicken lickums. And he's like, what's wrong with you? You look like Richard Sniffums. <laughs> what did you catch, boy? Yeah. So, Chad, we don't got a lot of time left. We're about to run out of juice on this thing. But I just I want to make sure that everybody understands we got their back. And when we have to, we'll do this again. We'll interrupt again. And we just saved you 15 minutes of listening to horse shit get poured in your ear canal. Yeah. Let's go ahead and hand this back to Fearful Jesuit and let him continue his diatribe of why everything we're talking about is explained by just a simple misunderstanding. It's all for the greater good. Double bullshit is not the same as a double negative. That's right. You just have twice as much bullshit. Let's, let's, let's turn this back over to Fearful Jesuit. So flip that switch. Grab the red wire, Chad. The red wire. Red. Red, red. Chad, the red. So, to review. Turn, turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. There's no evidence for this whole Andrew Mellon conspiracy, and even if he had wanted to get rid of his fluoride problem, he could have just dumped it in the water the way all of the other industries did, given the total lack of federal oversight or even the existence of such a thing as the EPA until decades later. Glad we put that behind us.
With that done, I think we're ready to move on, right? Hold on there, Poindexter. What's the real thing? What do you mean? You just established, when we were talking about how conspiracies about the Federal Reserve as espoused by QAnon nuts and others obscure real systemic problems about the Fed as an institution. And we learned all about Russia so that we could better understand how America's current conspiracy fever could jeopardize the very free society that we currently enjoy. So what's with the real-world situation that Q's obsession with Bircher-style global conspiracies is obscuring? Oh, well, the obvious answer is regulatory capture. Please elaborate. You know how the government has different agencies tasked with regulating certain industries, like the Department of Agriculture, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Food and Drug Administration, and their various subsidiaries? I do. Okay, regulatory capture is when the industries start to overpower and manhandle their own regulators. So instead of policies that are in the public interest, those regulators start churning out policies that suit the tastes of the big players in the industry itself. For example, remember the financial collapse that kicked off in 2009? I'm surprised that's even a question, really. While we know there are a number of factors that contributed to that tiny little hiccup in the grand, glorious march of global capitalism... One of the biggest had to do with the fact that Clever Boots financial alchemists at various big banks were allowed to collect and repackage mortgages that were fairly likely to end up in foreclosure individually. The idea was that by combining huge numbers of these mortgages into a big pool, you could spread out the individual risks such that these bad bets would all add up to a good bet. Therefore, you could invest grandma's pension money in the resulting financial instrument, because what are the odds that all these mortgages would fail at the same time? I'm going to say those odds, in retrospect, were extremely high. Exactly. And you may recall receiving this lesson rather more memorably via Margot Robbie drinking champagne in a bathtub in the film The Big Short. But you know what? The agencies that rated these instruments considered most of them AAA, or investment grade, which was why things like pension funds, which have very strict requirements for safe investments, could pour money into them. Well, clearly, they should call these government agencies to account for this failure. Dana, did you say government agencies? These rating agencies aren't run by the government. They are in fact run by companies whose bottom lines are dependent on fees paid to them by the very banks whose instruments they are rating. So they get paid by rating things the way the banks want them to? Isn't that a horrible conflict of interest? It is indeed. So why don't the actual regulators who are responsible for overseeing these banks, the SEC and the like, do something about this apparently self-dealing relationship? Well, that's on account of that aforementioned regulatory capture. See, the banks have more money, more employees, more influence, and more expertise than the agencies that are assigned to regulate them. So they're able to finagle the rules to suit their own interests, usually at the expense of the broader public that they, and other corporations, are intended to serve. The rating agencies are just one example. Here's another one, compliments of our beloved Fed reporter, Brendan Breen Greeley, and it concerns novel types of banks. Jesuit. I'm going to sound the boring alarm. Boring! 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 God damn it, why did I buy that thing? No, 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 just, just give me a few minutes. Promise this will be quick. Okay, there are a bunch of federal banking regulators that have lots of staff and lots of power and really do crack down on the regular. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, created during the Civil War to regulate national banks, for example. Of course, there's the Federal Reserve, which is responsible for the larger, too-big-to-fail banks. And which has its own set of problems detailed earlier. Agreed, but they genuinely force the big banks to meet certain stress tests and capital controls, whatever their other failings. And then there's the FDIC, which Breen characterizes as a beat cop, an implacable force applying well-established strict regulations on all banks that take consumer deposits. This sounds pretty good for the average Joe depositor so far. Sure, but that's where things get weird. 
Paraphrasing a long email Mr. Greeley wrote to us, the problem occurs every time someone creates a novel sort of bank. He used the highly technical term schmank. Like a money market fund or one of them stable coins that you may or may not have heard about depending on how much traffic from cryptocurrency advocates your social media feeds include. Regardless, each of these entities in turn denies up one side and down the other that they are in any way, shape, or form a bank. How dare you even suggest such a thing, you volet? I demand satisfaction. Shall we say muskets at dawn? Anyway, as Breen narrates it, over and over again, our regulatory bodies agree to treat these new definitely-not-a-banks instead as securities, even though the transactions they have with their customers and investors look a whole lot like a deposit situation, which again means they should fall under banking regulations. And since they're now viewed as securities, their oversight is handed over to the very, very overtaxed and overmatched SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, Precisely the group that let the big banks use self-regulating agencies to rate their bullshit investments in the example we highlighted earlier. Ah, so then every fly-by-night novel banking solution becomes yet another headache for the SEC, which can't even handle its current headaches. Precisely. And here we're just going to quote Breen directly, so imagine he's saying this instead of me. There should be one regulator, one set of rules, one set of criteria for examination. Instead, we have a hard-to-understand overlapping Venn diagram that looks like one of those 80s airbrushed Trapper Keeper covers with pink and yellow bubbles everywhere. This is by design. Banks and bank-like schmanks fight tooth and nail in Congress to keep regulation complicated and ineffective. That was a direct quote from him. I didn't write that. But then why doesn't anyone fix this? Well, that problem is known as the Iron Triangle in Washington. The agency assigned to oversee these schmanks doesn't want its funding cut, and the committees in Congress who oversee those industries and agencies surely don't want their powers curtailed. And the third side of that ferrous isosceles is, of course, the companies currently being incompetently regulated, and they sure as shit don't want to change the status quo. After all, they've captured the agency, as we outlined previously. So nobody involved has any incentive to fix the situation, and so it never, ever gets better. I'm going to quote Breen directly again because he wrote another zinger that I want to get across in his words. As he notes, we can never do something sensible like take one agency's oversight and move it to a more appropriate agency. Again, quoting him. So what we ended up with instead after 2009 was this ridiculous hydra called the Financial Stability Oversight Council, run by the Treasury and including representatives of every agency I've mentioned so far. The FSOC, created by Dodd-Frank because that was the best they could do, meets periodically to discuss how little they plan to do in the way of financial regulation. That is really, really grim. Yeah, and this kind of thing happens across the country in industry after industry every day. You know ag-gag laws, where it's illegal to even film the practices of meat manufacturers and livestock operators, thanks to the fact that their regulators, representatives, and senators are completely captured by the big operators in that industry? Or the incredible number of other industries that are essentially self-policed and self-regulated because they have convinced legislatures to defund the agencies that are supposed to oversee them, and have then offered out of the goodness of their hearts to just use their own employees to conduct all of the inspections that are supposed to be handled by unbiased regulators? Could you stop making it worse? Well, this is my point. QAnon lunatics, following in the footsteps of Robert Welch's crusades, never waver in their allegiance to the wisdom of unfettered capitalism as the cornerstone of the American way. And any opposition to said unfettered capitalism is automatically either the deep state or the commies, depending on which of these groups you're talking about. And so they ignore these catastrophic examples of self-dealing and corruption in favor of chasing phantoms. Or worse, they characterize the few dedicated government employees who actually try to fight these sorts of schemes 
as exactly the kind of deep state bureaucrats who must be rooted out in order to save the Republic. I'm sad now. This is incredibly upsetting. Well, it is unless you're a QAnon loon. You finished depressing me now? On to the next topic? Certainly. But it's not going to get any more comforting, because we're about to tackle the demonic situation that was sweeping the nation back in the 1980s. The Satanic Panic. This is, of course, the place where we take on the origins of one of the strangest Q obsessions, the core conviction that some huge number of children are, every year, stolen away from their parents, trafficked across state and national lines, and then eventually sold into the hands of a large, secret ring of monstrous, satanic perverts who molest and torture them not only to satisfy the perpetrator's repulsive cravings, but also to harvest substances from them that are used for various evil rites. And the worst part about this whole inhuman, disgusting plot is that these monsters are so brilliant they don't leave a trace of their bloody, satanic activities. In fact, so many apparently upstanding citizens are secretly involved in the cult, covering for each other and cleaning up each other's messes, that you'll never find any physical evidence that these horrific scenes happened at all. What some of you may have noticed is that the preceding description, while it definitely describes the allegations that Q devotees have leveled against the supposed cabal who harvest children's adrenochrome to maintain their health and youth, which group, we will remind you, consists of many members of various royal families, a large percentage of international celebrities, essentially all office-holding Democrats, and a bunch of Republicans who had the temerity to oppose or even disagree with God Emperor Trump. Right, but... We already covered these chumps. In our second coronavirus episode, the one he gave the unfortunate subtitle The Phlegm and the Fury. Artistic license, Dana. Anyway, we bring this up here because an extremely similar description also works for what you might otherwise assume to be a completely different phenomenon. The 1970s and 1980s wave of accusations, persecutions, and inevitable exonerations surrounding the alleged ubiquity of active satanic child abuse and murder cults in the United States and Canada a phenomenon that has retroactively come to be known in the press as the Satanic Panic. Though elements of that same press were all too happy to promote the shit out of said panic before everyone realized it was built on lies. Yes, indeed. But it's not just the Satanic Panic that the preceding description applies to. Bits and pieces of this horrific fable can be traced through an array of manias that have afflicted various groups around the world for thousands of years, so it makes sense that we would try to follow this thread back as far as we can, to better understand its origins, and then to examine the way it has mutated over the centuries until reaching its current Q-friendly form. So, where are we planting our historical flag this time? All the way back in the origins of the Bible. This next section is going to trot on some religious toes, which is not our purpose, but telling this story requires discussing some potentially controversial theses about the origins of all human religions, which therefore includes the progenitors of some of our most esteemed current sects. Specifically, we need to talk about human sacrifice. Depending on which secular historical expert you consult, human sacrifice was maybe a ubiquitous universal trait of early religions, or maybe it was just a sort of last-ditch Hail Mary. Please excuse this horrifically mixed metaphor. Used by the devout in times of real extremists. 
Undoubtedly, the first image that comes to mind for most of us is an Aztec priest carving out the hearts of hundreds of sacrificial victims, one after the other, atop a ziggurat temple, in a ceremony designed to appease the gods. But to get to the origins of the QAnon child slavery panic, we need to look thousands of miles away to the milieu in which the proto-Israelites found themselves a few thousand years ago. And that milieu, which is to say the Near East and the broader Mediterranean, definitely seems to have had some skeletons in its closet. Or, more specifically, buried around its altars. This is worth at least briefly exploring, if only because this history of religious human sacrifice seems to be the unspeakable historic origin point for the unbroken chain of conspiracy thinking that eventually led to the QAnon international child sex ring obsession. For most people, their only acquaintance with this stuff is from vaguely recalled readings in church or Sunday school. Or for those raised without religious instruction, second or third hand through friends and the culture at large. But among those who study the Bible and other ancient writings for a living, it is generally accepted that human sacrifice, and just as importantly, the accusation of human sacrifice that could be leveled at other groups and cultures, was an important part of the way those narratives were put together. So, for example, throughout the Hebrew Bible, aka the Christian Old Testament, you'll find the Jewish patriarchs and prophets railing against the horrific crimes of the peoples who live around them. Not coincidentally, this is usually tied to one of these things. The first is Israelites' plan to with the blessing of the Almighty, invade and indiscriminately kill or sell into slavery those horrible criminal people, including the women and children. Or, if an invasion isn't in the offing, the claim might be used to bemoan those criminal invaders who are even then menacing or invading the land of the Israelites, murdering said Israelites' own much more important women and children, and or selling them into slavery, and won't the aforementioned Almighty please get off his heavenly throne and smite that problem? True, but let's not get too incensed at the apparent hypocrisy of the ancient Jews. It's a sure bet that if we had more of the religio-historical writings of the peoples they were impugning, the Canaanites, for example, the Israelites would look just as bad in that version, and the Canaanites just as innocent and justified. Anyway, the reason we're mentioning this is because there are plenty of points where the scriptures indicate that one of the reasons God wants these surrounding peoples smote is because they practiced human, and more specifically and heinously, child sacrifice to their gods, like Baal and Moloch. Now, the question of how widespread this practice was among those tribes is still an open one in scholarly circles, but the thing we're most interested in here is how the various authors of the Bible seem to be engaging in a bit of, to quote Hamlet, The lady doth protest too much. In other words, if you look through the references in the Bible, you eventually get the feeling that while the authors definitely think this whole human sacrifice thing is absolutely abhorrent, that maybe their ancestors were a little more open to it. Call it sacrifice curious. And further, that there were at least some people around at the time these books were being written who were at least occasionally dabbling in the practice. Like, the Bible spills a lot of ink telling people not to do any human sacrifice. And frankly, you don't bother exhorting people not to do something they're not already doing. I mean, you'll tell people to do things that are good and that they're not currently doing. For example, nobody frets that people save too much for retirement or eat way too many leafy greens. But they also don't tell people not to cut off their right foot and hop around on the left in an intersection screaming, I'm a bouncy bunny, because while that would be a terrible thing for a person to do, nobody's doing that. You only prescribe bad behavior that's already happening. Now, your religious believer reading these passages might see nothing but a clear moral declaration against reprehensible crimes. For example, here's chapter 12, verse 31 of the book of Deuteronomy. Every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So clearly the Israelites don't want anything to do with these people. 
But then there's verses like this one from the book of Jeremiah. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Here the prophet is channeling the voice of the Lord talking about Israelites who have fallen away from the worship of the true God and have instead gone over to Baal worship and the sacrifice of their kids to same. Which is super weird if you believe that their ancestors for many generations have worshipped the one God in the region, Yahweh, who is clearly anti-child sacrifice. But it makes more sense if you consider this is maybe a culture that had human sacrifice in it not too long ago and has tirelessly attempted in the interim to extirpate all of that history from the way it sees itself, and certainly so by the time the various books of the Bible are being written. Plus, doesn't that phrasing, nor did it ever enter my mind, sound a little too much like Larry David denying that he even thought about taking candy from a baby? But like, he did. He definitely thought about it. If you, like me, are fascinated by differing perspectives on topics like this, there are plenty of arguments available out there. For example, Dr. Aaron Mayer, an American-Israeli archaeologist and lecturer, has this to say about human sacrifice in the region at the time. There's a, uh, a very strong tradition in, in Roman sources, but also in archaeological remains related to the Phoenicians. And according to that, the Phoenicians sacrificed infants to a god, and you know, according to the Roman depiction, they were thrown into a fire or something of the sort. And and there have have been found several cemeteries in various Phoenician sites, both in Lebanon, perhaps in, in northern Israel, and also, for example, in Carthage and other Phoenician sites uh, in the Mediterranean, where it has been suggested that they this was evidence of this infant sacrifice. Now, there's debate about this. Some scholars accept it. Some scholars don't accept it. But the the biblical tradition is very clear in talking about that the Phoenicians burnt their babies, sacrificed their children. And there is a biblical narrative uh, saying that this tradition also came to Jerusalem in the late Iron Age and castigating it. That this is a horrible thing that should be done. So there seems to be a tradition that there was some sort of uh, infant sacrifice practiced by some people in, in Iron Age uh, Judah. But we don't have any evidence of this archaeologically, and we don't have any evidence of other types of human sacrifice in uh, Israel or Judah during the Iron Age. Does that mean that it didn't occur at all? It's hard to say. On the other hand, here's Dr. Heath Durrell of Princeton Theological Seminary talking about his book, Child Sacrifice in Ancient Israel, in which he argues for more archaeological evidence than Dr. Mayer accepts. And intriguingly, he points out that the Bible has an interesting way of talking about firstborn sons and how they relate to Yahweh. I get interested in the places where there's tension in the text, because they do seem to have a common groundwork or framework. For example, in the book, there does seem to be a common assumption throughout, as far as I can tell, the entire Hebrew Bible, that in some way, firstborn children belong to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. That gets played out in three, four, maybe five different ways. But they've got this common groundwork. One person, one text mate might say that um, you're to give some kind of animal sacrifice in lieu of the firstborn child. Another might say you're supposed to pay X amount to support the shrine. Another text actually uh, counts off the number of firstborn children that were wandering in the wilderness, allegedly, and then counts up the Levites and says there's one for one. And when the numbers don't quite match, then they have to find a way. But the Levites take the place of the firstborn children. In one text, I would argue that it just says that you're to give God your firstborn child. So there's diversity of belief represented in the Hebrew Bible. But there's also a strong commonality. <laughs> 
Later in the same interview, Durell relates an argument first posited in the early 20th century by a German scholar. The theory uses a complicated take based on Hebrew grammar to suggest that Molech, which most have taken as a name for a deity to whom reprobate Israelites are sacrificing their children, may instead be a reference to the act of sacrificing children to any given god, which god in this case would of course have been Yahweh, who was by far the most popular deity among these people. Dr. Kip Davis of the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute at Trinity Western University in Canada notes that because, as we mentioned above, the Bible is written by a variety of authors, there seem to be parts that definitely allude to an older period that subsequent authors are trying desperately to whitewash or forget. It's condemned in uh, other passages by, by Yahweh himself. He says, I never asked for human sacrifices. I don't want it. I mean, how much more clear can you be? It's a complicated situation because there are echoes throughout the Hebrew Bible of a time when human sacrifice, child sacrifice, appears to have been something that was normative in some respect. And these are not human or child sacrifices made to the other gods, the gods of the nations. These are human child sacrifices made to Yahweh. Mm. And it's something that certainly at various points in the history of Israel and Judah in the writing and the editing of the Hebrew Bible is something that the authors and the editors were grappling with. They were obviously repulsed by the practice at some point and felt it necessary to essentially scrub it out of the text. And yet we have remnants of a practice that seems like it was clearly a part of the religious ritual at a time in Israel's history. Just two more bits we want to mention at this point. The first is an idea that, as near as we can tell, originated with the brilliant and polarizing late journalist and essayist Christopher Hitchens. His controversial thesis suggested that since pig and human DNA is so similar that at this point we're literally transplanting pig organs into humans, and since those who have had the misfortune of getting close to human bodies that have been exposed to a lot of heat over a long period, firefighters for example, or survivors of war, have often noted how nauseatingly similar cooking human smells to cooking pork. Oh, Jesser, don't do this to me. I like barbecue. Me too. Sorry. He suggests that perhaps the reason the Jews were forbidden from eating pork was as a way of showing revulsion for their cultural memory of burnt human sacrifices to Yahweh. Or as one more charitable author put it, because the sacrifice of pigs, seeming so similar to the sacrifice of humans, might encourage worshippers to elide the differences and take up the horrific sacrificial practices of those cultures around them. And second, let's consider that biblical story of Abraham and Isaac. It's surely familiar to many, if not most of you, but as a quick refresher, Here's an entirely accurate rendition of the story via an animated Christian Bible short for children. Peppered as needed with editorial comments. A long time ago in the land of Canaan, there lived a good and noble man named Abraham. He was an important man because God picked his family to play a part in the plan to rescue the whole world. In order to set this plan in motion, God made a covenant with him. A covenant is like a big promise that lasts forever, and God's covenant with Abraham was a special one. We're skipping a bit here, but God tells Abraham that he's going to have more descendants than there are stars in the sky, a figure on which the Almighty is only off by, like, 200 sextillion or so. But the more salient thing is, as the video notes, Abraham was very surprised to hear this. He loved the thought of having a huge family, but there was one problem. He and his wife Sarah weren't able to have any children, and now they were too old. It seemed impossible 
but Abraham chose to trust God and believe his promise. Again, they kind of soft pedal too old here. According to the original text, Abraham was a hundred, while his wife Sarah was a sprightly ninety when they finally had the promised kid, Isaac, ten years after God made his promise. Patton Oswalt has provided a succinct visual representation of this miracle. He lays on top of his beloved like a pile of laundry on top of another pile of laundry. Then, nine months later, she gives birth to a beautiful baby, which I will illustrate by pushing this uncooked Cornish game hen through these gray drapes. The next big plot point comes when But when Isaac was still a young boy, God asked Abraham for a different kind of sacrifice. God said to him, This year, when you bring me your sacrifice, instead of killing an animal and giving it to me, I want you to give me your only son, Isaac. Abraham was shocked. No, not Isaac, he thought. How can I possibly kill him? How can I give his life away? So in this version, Abraham goes along with the idea, knowing that God must be messing with him, since how can he eventually have all those descendants without Isaac being alive? There is no such mention of this comforting thought in the original text, but since this is a pretty fucked up story to tell kids in the first place, it would probably be unfair of me to point out that it seems like God could just magic them up a second kid if needed to replace the one he demands as a sacrifice, right? He rounded up Isaac, kissed Sarah goodbye, and began the three-day journey to the place where they offered sacrifices to God. When they reached the top, Isaac began helping his father build an altar out of stones, all the while wondering what they were going to sacrifice. After they had finished placing the firewood on top of the altar, Abraham sat down with Isaac to explain what God was asking him to do. With tears filling his eyes, Abraham said, Son, I love you so much. You are a gift from God to us, and he has asked me to offer you as a sacrifice to him. As much as it hurts me, I am going to put my trust in our God. Isaac did not fully understand, but he trusted his father as much as his father trusted God, so he agreed. There's also no mention of Isaac agreeing, or all of the flowery language, about how much his father loves him. Abraham just ties the kid up and gets ready to knife him, when an angel appears and stays his hand. Father and newly freed son then find a goat to sacrifice instead, and all is hunky-dory. Well, except for Isaac's huge therapy bills? Yeah, that's, uh, that's going to send an analyst kid through college. And not a state school, either. So, aside from the snark, surely there's one more important thing to consider. Like, this story only makes sense if Abraham believed that asking for the sacrifice of his eldest son was something God might do. Explain. Okay, if you're Abraham and you hear a voice telling you to kill your kid and you think it's a message from the Lord, you could only think that if you suspected that human sacrifice might be the kind of thing that God would want. See? Otherwise, you'd assume it was some sort of evil demonic presence, or maybe just voices in your head. But anyway, you'd know for sure it couldn't possibly be the Yahweh you worship because he would never ask for such an evil thing. Jesus. No, he doesn't show up for quite a while in the story. But anyway, even a charitable reading of the event centers the importance of human and child sacrifice in the world of the Bible's authors, and almost certainly suggests it's something that, at the very least, their forebears had engaged in. So, a quick wrap-up. Many, or perhaps all, early human cultures, including probably the pro-Canaanite Phoenicians from which the Israelites eventually emerged, engaged in human sacrifice. And throughout the Old Testament, there are plenty of verses on the evils of the practice, both as justification for wars against neighboring groups, and also as a warning to those Jews who have more recently taken up ritual murder on behalf of one god or another. But however much it has been redacted, 
there's some weird stuff leaking through in the text that might indicate that Yahweh expected eldest sons would belong or be given to him. While there are other ways of viewing these terms, one pretty straightforward reading leans towards the idea that somewhere deep in the past, somebody maybe probably sacrificed some kids to the God that eventually came to be worshipped as the anti-human sacrifice God of Israel. But now's the time where you stop hearing me bloviate and start getting info from the experts. So I'm going to let one of them introduce himself. So I'm Justin Sledge. I am an expert in Western esotericism. I study things like the occult, magic, alchemy, Kabbalah, theosophy, sort of that grab bag of weird stuff. But I do so from an academic angle. So I'm not a practitioner of these things. I'm an academic and I have advanced degrees in both philosophy and religious studies. In fact, I have a degree from the only place that actually grants an advanced degree in the study, academic study of Western esotericism. So it's a pretty unique skill set. So that's basically what I do. I host a channel on YouTube called Esoterica that is uh, basically popular education on topics in Western esotericism. So we really run the gamut through Kabbalah, alchemy, magic, witchcraft, everything that I have any expertise in. It's been a popular channel. It's, it's growing quite well, and it's honestly just a lot of fun to work on. I get to have great conversations like this. Dr. Sledge, in addition to being a popular YouTuber. Well, at least popular for the kind of stuff Jesuit watches. He's also someone whose content we turned to back in the Secret Societies episodes when we were discussing the Hermetic tradition. Here, among other things, we wanted him to comment on the story of Abraham and Isaac and give us his impression of the role of human sacrifice in these regions in biblical times. It's certainly the case that human sacrifice was practiced, I think, ubiquitously throughout most of the world. And there's certainly some cultural memory of it in, in, the, in the Levant and in Canaan. And, you know, the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? You, you read that story carefully, and there are a lot of scholars that actually argue that in the original version of it, Isaac was sacrificed. Because you look at the, the way it ends, and it says, and Abraham came down the mountain. It never mentions Isaac. There's something weird going on there. I think that the Israelites are definitely trying to distinguish themselves from their neighbors in lots of ways, one of which is that they do not sacrifice people, and specifically children. You know, this idea of you can't cast your children through the fire of Moloch. I think that child sacrifice was probably pretty rare. The, the cases of it where we see it mentioned predominantly in the literature, and I'm here talking about the ancient Near East, are in sieges. That seems to be when child sacrifice would happen. And typically, it would be aristocrat sacrifice. That is to say, the kings or whatever would be sacrificing their own children to get the gods to lift the siege. We can't imagine how bad sieges were back then or in, in general. They're, you know, this is the most horrifying kind of war. In the cases where in the Bible where it mentions them, it mentions people eating their own children after they run out of dogs to eat or whatever. It's horrifying. The Aztecs and the Mayans, we think of them as being especially brutal in their sacrifices, but I bet they're closer to the, the way that a lot of other civilizations were. I suspect that it was significantly ubiquitous, but I think still quite rare. I think you would have to have something bad precipitating it, maybe a really bad drought, or I think in most cases, sieges were the most typical times where we see child sacrifice being levied. So you might be wondering, how did Dr. Sledge get so interested in these topics in the first place? I grew up watching a lot of mystery shows like Unsolved Mysteries or Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World or In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. And I just love these shows about all this bizarre thing, Atlantis and ghosts and UFOs and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and all this stuff. From an early age, I just had a very strong sense that the world was very unusual and maybe even populated by very strange entities. As I got older... I hung on to that sense of awe about the world, that the world was a very weird place and there were very weird things in history and very weird things in reality. 
But what ends up happening is that as I get older, I also become skeptical. And that skepticism of all of this weird stuff where, you know, if you look at the amount of animals that actually live in Loch Ness, you realize that no creature could be living in Loch Ness of that size because it simply wouldn't have anything to eat. So I became more skeptical, but I maintained that interest. And so in a lot of ways, my entryway into the study of Western esotericism was a combination of maintaining a deep interest in topics in esotericism, like uh, the history of alchemy, the history of magic, but also coming at that from a very skeptical point of view. And so my attitude toward this is what I call on my channel sympathetic criticism. My job is to get inside the head of medieval people or early modern people or maybe even modern people to understand why they believed what they believed about magic or demons or, or what have you. But at the same time, I'm thoroughgoingly a materialist person when it comes to my philosophical views in the sense that I think that matter basically is what exists. I don't believe in anything supernatural. And so insofar as I don't believe in anything supernatural, I don't really have a, a dog in the fight about whether or not magic is real or there really are demons or there really are, I don't know, spirits that you can conjure using magic. And certainly I don't believe you can transmute base metals into gold or anything like that. So my entryway into all of this was a combination of the world is really weird and history is really weird and full of a lot of weird things we don't really understand. And that doesn't commit me to believing in any of it. So I come at it from that angle, a skeptical angle, but still sympathetic, because I think also that looking down our nose at medieval people or looking down our nose at people in antiquity, because we know better about everything than them, I think that's also a really erroneous, hubristic, arrogant way of looking at things that I think actually does us more of a disservice and actually helps us to understand medieval people and why they might believe what they believe. One of my big arguments about this esotericism stuff is that it's never gone away. It's still with us in lots of ways. And one of the ways that it's still very much with us is the rise of, of things like conspiracy theories. Contemporary conspiracy theories rely on medieval tropes to work. They only work because of those medieval tropes. And so to know that we're, in some sense, well beyond the days of the witch hunts, but we're not as far from them as we might like to believe that we are. The past is, it's never really past. We're always living in the, in the echoes of it. And so to understand this material, which is a core component of Western civilization, is a really important task, I think, for scholarship and our understanding of ourselves and our history. Getting back to our exploration of how the child sacrifice and exploitation conspiracy has its roots in the ancient past, here we move from the uneasy relationship of Jewish scripture with the history of the practice into some other notable points where this topic intersects with the evolution of Western, that is historically Christian, culture. First things first, it's worth remembering that even your garden variety, mainstream Christianity is in fact a religion built on the idea of human sacrifice. Hold on a second, Jesuit. Wait, that's... That's true, isn't it? Anyway you slice it, yeah, the early followers decided... Or Jesus told them in advance, depending on how literal you take the gospel accounts. ...that Jesus was tortured and killed as a sinless sacrifice that God made to himself. Trinitarian theology gets complicated, but if Jesus was also God, then it is technically God sacrificing himself to himself. So as to forgive the otherwise unforgivable sins of a reprobate humanity, all of whom were collectively accountable for Adam and Eve's original sin, and therefore doomed to burn eternally without said sacrifice. 
In essence, this was the end of the ancient tradition, both pagan and Jewish, of sacrificing animals and shares of your crops to the gods. Jesus was, in this theology, the ultimate perfect sacrifice, and so all you needed to do now was believe in that sacrifice and follow him. But that still means the only way that God would allow people's sins against him to be forgiven was a human sacrifice. But at least it was just like the one. Right. And then there was the body and blood of Christ thing, especially in the literal Catholic transubstantiation, which adds a sousson of cannibalism to the whole affair. And we'll see more of that in the second point that we want to make here, which is, while the Christians would turn the accusation against the Jews once they were in power, it was originally the followers of Jesus themselves who were accused by the Romans of incest, human sacrifice, and cannibalism. To explain, we once again turn to one of the show's two favorite ancient historians, the brilliant Dr. Bart Ehrman. One of the best references to this comes from a Christian apology, which was written by a Christian named Octavius, who also lived in North Africa. Octavius gives an account of the charges leveled against Christians. The notoriety of the stories told of the initiations of new Christian recruits is matched by their ghastly horror. And this is what they're told to do with their new recruits. A young baby is covered with flour, the object being to deceive the unwary. It is then, then served before the person to be admitted into their rights. The recruit is urged to inflict blows upon it. They appear to be harmless because of the covering of flour. Thus, the baby is killed with wounds that remain unseen and concealed. It is the blood of this infant that they lick with thirsty lips. These are the limbs they distribute eagerly. This is the victim by which they seal their covenant. It's by complicity in this crime that they are pledged to mutual silence. These are their rights, more foul than all sacrileges combined. He goes on to describe orgies that Christians engage in at night. People who are related to each other engaged in sexual activities together at night. What is this all about? Christians were widely charged with having incestuous orgies, with killing babies, and eating them. Where did these charges come from? Remember, Christians were meeting in secret. They often had to meet at dark because they were of the lower classes. These were people who had to work during the day. They called each other brother and sister, and they were known to greet one another with a kiss. Brothers and sisters kissing in the dark? What's that all about? Rumors of incest fly. Moreover, they were known to eat the body and drink the blood of the Son of God. They're eating the body and drinking the blood of the son. They're killing babies and eating them. The charges then were of incestuous orgies, infanticide, and cannibalism. Oh shit, Dana, that reminds me. Did you remember to set the TiVo for that new detective series set in the Roman Empire in the 2nd century CE? I did not, because TiVo hasn't been a thing in like a decade, and we live on different continents, and I'm pretty sure that show doesn't exist. Oh, it doesn't? Then how do I have this clip provided to us by the network? Oh no. No, Jesuit, not a skit. Too late. Okay, Publius, we just want to know why we have reports of you eating. What does it say on your tablet, Detective Gaius? I'll tell you what it says. It says this degenerate Christian fuck was eating a deep-fried toddler, Sergeant Sextus. And you know what, scumbag? It makes me want to puke! No, no, simmer down. I'm not going to crucify this one. Yet. Hey, keep that guy away from me. I don't even know what I'm doing here, man. I just left one of our prayer meetings, and as I gave the kiss of blessing to my sister in Christ, Antonia... Wait, you were kissing your sister? You're doing more than that, you sick piece of shit! Let me at him! It'll save the state the cost of a trial for this maggot. No, no, man. It's not my real sister. My blood sister's not even a Christian, man. It's just what we Christians call each other. 
The whole congregation. They're all my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I get it. Not your birth family, but your religious family. Exactly. So your whole big friendly church family eats baby butt butt. Gaius, curb stomp this dirt. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's worth noting here again that the persecution of Christians wasn't ubiquitous or generally mandated from the emperor down, as many modern Christians will suggest. More often it started with mobs blaming Christians for bad stuff that happened, assuming it was because those assholes wouldn't worship the gods of the Roman state, which gods were therefore pissed and taking it out on everyone else. But a number of Christians were in fact martyred for their beliefs. In many cases, their genuine actual beliefs, not just those manufactured by the imperial Briscoe and Green he just presented. Of course, in the wake of the conversion of Constantine and the eventual domination of Christianity over the whole empire, the worry about sexual and child-abusing immorality among a religious minority shifted gradually from the targeting of Christians by pagans to the persecution of Jews by ascendant Christians. The reason for Christian hatred of Jews dates back to some complicated theological developments in early Christianity that all kind of boil down to the Christian self-serving conclusion that the Jews killed the Messiah that their God had sent to save them and therefore were the worst possible kind of apostate criminals. So no matter what you did to them, they deserved worse. Dr. Sledge walks us through the impacts of those beliefs and how they eventually became a cornerstone of the entire epistemology we now consider conspiracy thinking. There is no modern conspiracy theories without anti-Semitism. They basically function on a backbone of anti-Semitism, and unsurprisingly, most conspiracy theories are just nakedly anti-Semitism. So how did this happen? Well, the main component is to be really starting to find it in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I don't want to say that Christianity is somehow inherently anti-Semitic or anything like that. I don't believe that, and I don't think that's true. But there's a moment in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is uh, being put on trial and Pilate says, who do you guys want to crucify? And they, there's a famous line where he says, you know, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. And that establishes a biblical New Testament basis for the idea that the Jewish people as a composite group are somehow responsible for the execution of Jesus. This is the origin of the so-called Christ killer myth, the idea of deicide. The Jews as a group of people are now corporately responsible for this titanic crime. You have to have that component to get a conspiracy theory off the ground because you need everyone in on it. It's not enough to have some people doing some bad stuff. It has to be hoi yehudoi, the Jews. Early Christianity is highly polemical religion. They're very much in the business of arguing against people who don't agree with them, whether it's the so-called Gnostics or Jewish people or other kind of pagans. Ironically enough, what ends up happening is that the same kinds of mythological ideas that are actually put on the Jews originally, things like human sacrifice by the Greeks, and the Romans, who also heap a lot of disdain at the early Christians and accuse them of all kinds of nefarious things like killing babies and cannibalism and, and catacombs and things like this, those tropes get reversed and actually get applied by Christians onto Jews and other heterodox Christians, people like the Gnostics. What we'll see over and over again is through Christian history, when Christianity needs to deal with an enemy, what it will do is it'll rehash those same tropes. Incest or cannibalism or that they're secretly killing people or something like that. Over the course of the centuries, as Christianity wears on into the Middle Ages, this gets heaped upon dissident Christians, people like the Cathars, assuming the Cathars existed, certainly the Waldensians, who certainly existed, they still exist, and also Jewish people. And this takes the form of the blood libel. Also, well poisoning was a big thing Jews were accused of doing all over Europe. 
being responsible for the Black Death. This sets up basically a trope where the Jews as a group of people all through Europe are engaging in basically ritual murder, specifically ritual murder of children. And there are various versions of why this ritual murder is happening. In some versions, it's part of a ritual to go back to the Holy Land. That's the earlier version. The later versions typically are killing children in order to get blood to make matzah during Passover. Some other versions actually have it. They're just killing people as mockery of the execution of Jesus. They're crucifying people in secret, which seems like a quite difficult thing to do, actually. Hard to keep that kind of thing under wraps. And so what you get is this idea that the Jews are not just blind and sinful people, but they are also anti-Christian as a group. They are actively working in the interest of destabilizing and attempting to destroy Christianity. And at the same time that that's developing and the anti-Cathar stuff is developing, there's a move toward the idea that not only are the Jews involved in this, but also there is a completely new heretical movement primarily led by women. This is the witches that will eventually be hunted down by things like Malleus Maleficarum and other documents. And there we just see, again, many of the same ideas that were originally tossed at Jews, then tossed at other heterodox Christians, now really fomenting into the witch hunts beginning sometime around 1400 or so. It's in those cases where you get the idea that a vast group of people, specifically this witch cult, is entering into packs with the devil, meeting in giant meetings, secret meetings in the night. They're flying there, depending on the myth. They're sacrificing babies and using the fat of those babies for various kinds of flying ointments or dungeons. They're using magic to cause crops to fail. They're doing all of this as part of the devil's final sort of outrage against God on the, on the eve of the apocalypse. In fact, in some versions of the witch hunt narrative, the devil's actually attempting to forestall the apocalypse, and he's using all this outrage in order to forestall the apocalypse. So the witch hunts, anti-Semitism, all of this stuff is wrapped up, and it's with that machinery that you're going to see the conspiracy theories that will emerge later, whether the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, where Jews secretly control the world or Hollywood or whatever. Being Jewish myself, my joke I always say is that the Jews secretly control the world, I'm missing my check. Really would love to get my check. The International Jewish Conspiracy. One of the biggest moments for the development and dissemination of the blood libel conspiracy theory was the 12th century murder of William of Norwich. Professor Miri Rubin of Queen Mary University, London, walks us through the basics of the crime. On Easter Friday, 1144, the body of a boy was found in Thorpe Wood, just outside the city of Norwich. Henry, a man from the village of Sprouse to just two miles beyond uh, the city, had stumbled across the body in its shallow grave. He noticed it was a boy wounded all over, but being in haste to get to Norwich for Easter confession and the other celebrations, he covered it and left it until a later time. And good to his word, he returned on Easter Monday with the priest of his own village, of his own parish church, and with his family. News of the discovery soon spread in the city. A married priest called Godwin identified the boy as his lost nephew, William, a 12-year-old apprentice skinner who'd gone missing during Holy Week. The complaint was brought to the bishop that the boy has been found and there's reason to think that he had been killed by Jews. The bishop acted properly by summoning the sheriff, the royal official charged with all issues related to the Jews as sheriffs were, to answer for their alleged guilt. The sheriff appeared and denied any truth to the accusation, both in terms of Jewish motivations, why would they want to do it, and in terms of the available evidence, there was none, and he was the top 
legal official of the county. There was no legal basis for a case to be brought against the Jews, so he dismissed the issue. Still, for good measure, he housed the Norwich Jews in his headquarters, Norwich Castle, for their own protection. And our author claims that he did so because the Jews had actually bribed him with a hundred marks of silver. So you may wonder how indeed I know so much about the affair, how we know about the affair. Our sole source is a work authored by a monk who had joined Norwich Cathedral Priory around 1150. So that is six years after the events I've just recounted. This was Thomas of Monmouth. And here is the problem. Almost everything we know about the events of 1144 surrounding the boy's death and the accusation of the Jews, which led to the invention, finally, of an infamous and enduring anti-Jewish narrative, is made available to us through the survival of a sole manuscript. The work, you see here, is 77 folios long, and it told in 44,500 Latin words the story that we will investigate here. Its author called the work a vita et passio, as we see, a life and passion, that is an account of a life unto its death, a very special death, like Christ's own, and that is martyrs. But it also includes sections we may call polemical. As she just noted, our only resource for information on the murder, its motivations, and its aftermath is that one book written by a monk who arrived at the local monastery six years after the event. She goes on to paint Monmouth's narrative as, and I'm quoting here, presenting him as a detective re-examining a cold case. If you're a fan of the novels of Humberto Eco or the mid-80s oeuvre of Sean Connery, then no doubt you're calling to mind the character William of Baskerville, Echo's meticulous medieval monk detective in The Name of the Rose. Unfortunately, the real-life detective monk leaves a lot to be desired in the impartial examination department. Indeed, because far from examining all possible motives and perpetrators, Monmouth locks in on one unquestioned central fact. That being, the Jews did it. And instead of trying to identify an actual perpetrator, it moves swiftly into creating a motive for these purported miscreants to have perpetrated this horrible crime. Note that there is no need to identify a specific perpetrator. A sweeping, the Jews, is more than sufficient. Anyway, Monmouth expends a lot of ink trying to make his grand Jewish plot narrative believable, stating the boy was well known to local Jewish people as a skilled repairer of fur hats, collars, and similar articles, and that the detective himself learned from local Jews who later converted to Christianity that the Jewish community had been plotting for years to perpetrate a crime just like this. Of course, he's clearly a rabid anti-Semite, and we have nothing in the way of evidence for any of what he's saying except his own word, so we're going to assume most or all of this is self-serving codswallop. Then we get to the supposed plot itself. First, one of the crafty criminals convinces the boy and his mother that the lad is needed as kitchen help for a local church during Holy Week. To explain the importance of this, a quick digression in this version of The Lightning Round. 180 seconds on the clock, and start. Holy Week is the Catholic term for the week before Easter, the celebration of Christ's resurrection. So Easter Sunday is the date when the disciples are reported to have discovered the empty tomb, but the preceding Friday, known as Good Friday, marks the date of the crucifixion. That is, the date that Christ died. Now, this is important, because the whole reason Jesus was in Jerusalem that week in the first place was because he had deliberately ventured to the holy city of the Jews to proclaim his message during Passover. Wait, I guess we have to describe Passover, so double lightning round! Passover is the annual celebration of the miracle by which the Jews, exiled in Egypt following Moses' instructions, painted the blood of sacrificed lambs on the doorways of their houses. 
Then the angels Yahweh sent to murder the firstborn of every family in Egypt as punishment for their intransigence in not releasing the Jewish people from their bondage, those angels passed over the houses marked with lamb's blood, meaning the firstborn of the faithful Jews were saved. Holy shit, there's a lot of blood and murder in the Bible, isn't there? A surprising amount, yes, unicorn. But I'm on a timer here. Anyway, in the centuries since this lamb's blood non-murder thing supposedly happened... There's no real evidence that there ever was a large-scale Jewish exile in Egypt. Religious Jews have celebrated said miracle with a week of prayer and feasting called the Passover that starts with a large Seder meal on the first night. Okay, first digression over. Back to digression level one. So, and this is well-grounded historically, Jesus wanted to announce the coming kingdom of God in front of the largest possible audience. Thus, he went to the biggest Jewish city at the time of year when pilgrims would be traveling there to celebrate Passover. And so, by the time he had pissed off the Roman authorities and been condemned to death, the Passover season was in full swing. Now, part of the celebration of Passover was the sacrifice of a lamb that would then be the centerpiece of that first night Seder meal we referenced earlier. Christian theology evolved to see Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. Depending on which gospel you read, he was crucified and died either on the day of Passover or the day of preparation for Passover, like the day before. So regardless, he came to be seen as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sacrifice that only needed to happen once and that replaced all future sacrifices forever. That's also why the celebration of the Easter resurrection has historically tracked pretty closely to the ongoing Jewish celebration of Passover, even though they're based on different calendars. For example, in 2022, Easter Sunday was April 17th, and the first day of Passover was the 15th, which means it was literally on Good Friday. It's not often these holidays so closely aligned to the New Testament chronology, but it sometimes happens. And we're done with the lightning round. So, we only told you all of that because it's important for understanding the horrible slander that Monmouth is about to make on the Jewish people. And so, back to our story. As the boy goes with the conspirators to work in a Christian kitchen for the Feasts of Holy Week, he is then seized, tortured, and murdered by the local Jewish community in a parody of the crucifixion. His body was supposedly found with a crown of thorns on his head. Now, why would they do this? Well, I mean, they didn't. No, of course they didn't. But why was Monmouth saying they did? Again, Professor Rubin has the explanation, reading from Monmouth's book. Philo, who was once a Jew and later one of our monks, that is a convert, told us that Jews could not achieve their freedom nor ever return to the lands of their fathers without the shedding of human blood. Hence it was decided by them a long time ago that every year, to the shame and front of Christ, a Christian somewhere on earth be sacrificed to the highest God. And so they take revenge for the injuries of him whose death is the reason for their exclusion from their fatherland. Leaders and rabbis of the Jews who dwell in Spain and Narbonne meet together and cast lots of all the regions where Jews live. Whichever region was chosen by lot, its capital city had to apply that lot then to the other cities and towns, and the one whose name came up will carry out the business, as decreed. In that year, however, when the glorious martyr of God, William, was killed, it so happened that the lot fell on the men of Norwich. So the Jews supposedly cast lots in secret, determined which town must conduct the human sacrifice, and then they secretly and ritually murdered a Christian child as revenge on the sacrifice of Jesus, which is apparently the thing that keeps them out of their holy land. That makes absolutely no sense. Of course it does not. But, unfortunately, this explanation of the boy's death proved far more popular and influential than Thomas of Monmouth could possibly have imagined. 
Over the subsequent century, his narrative spread from monastery to monastery, town to town, with stories of Jews murdering Christians leading to mob violence against local Jewish communities, not just in England, but eventually throughout Christian Europe. Eventually, the narrative evolved to the point that instead of just crucifying the Christian child, the perfidious Jews also drained his blood because it's the secret ingredient in matzah, the unleavened bread that religious Jews eat during Passover as a symbol of the fact that their ancestors were forced to flee Egypt so quickly they couldn't wait for the yeast in the bread to rise. Once again, and do we really have to tell you this? There is no blood in matzah. It's just another awful conspiracy slur against Jewish people. Of course, but it was one more way to otherize Jews and turn them into an easily persecutable and exploitable subclass throughout Europe. It also, as Justin Sledge pointed out to us, proved incredibly malleable, a conspiracy theory for any situation in which those who saw themselves as representing Christian civilization could apply the same fears and accusations to whomever they were then confronting, including, as we noted in our historical political conspiracy series, Native Americans. So this is all wrapped up together. Protocols, right? And again, even with modern QAnon stuff with the globalist or whatever, which is just cover for basically Jews, you know, it's Soros or whatever Jew they pick out of the, of the hat. It's, you know, harvesting children for adrenochrome or secret tunnels beneath daycare centers. If you look at the kind of accusations that get levied in these uh, panics, it's almost exactly some repackaged version of either the witch hunt legends or the anti-Cathar legends or the blood libel legend. You rearrange the deck chairs in the Titanic, right? You get some version of, of how to ruin people's lives. But the stock tropes of these conspiracy theories are just baked into the Western imagination. This is how we frame our enemies. Even the way that Native Americans were framed was informed by how witches were framed. If you look at early woodcuts of witches, like roasting children and doing all these dreadful things at the Witches' Sabbath, and you look at the earliest depictions of Native Americans, it's clear that they're basing depictions of Native Americans, these horrible cannibal savages, they're basing them on the depictions of the witches. Now, what I don't want to make it sound like is that there's actually a conspiracy of conspiracy theories where, you know, Alex Jones is sitting down with the Malus Maleficarum being like, I wonder if it really is that these guys are doing this. But I will say that it sounds crazy, but it is the case that during the satanic panic in the 80s, the evangelical Christians were consulting medieval inquisitorial manuals to understand, you know, this is our first rodeo. We've fought the fight the devil in the past. And they're like consulting 15th century witch hunting manuals. Continuing Dr. Sledge's trip down paranoid strain memory lane, he shows us how early church teaching, plus the way the church confronted what it saw as the heretical Cathar menace, see the relevant sections of our secret society series, led eventually to the persecution of witches. In the Christian world, in the Middle Ages at least, the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, are their bread and butter. If you need to know what's going on in the world, there's nothing new in the world for these people. It's just the same devil doing the same things. And so if, if St. Augustine's already dealt with this, well, go see what Augustine said. The appeal to authority is so strong in the Middle Ages that you have Irenaeus having dealt with so-called Manichaeans or, or Augustine dealing with them with Manichaeans or whatever. They just rehash it. The apostolic fathers are really going to be the bread and butter of people like Bernard Guy and Nicholas Emmerich. And these are the guys that will form the kernel of these inquisitional manuals. People find it tedious, and it is very tedious, that you'll be reading Malleus Maleficarum or Directorium Inquisitorum, and they're just long quotations from apostolic fathers, but that's because their fundamental argument is this is nothing new, it's just repackaged. When you get into tracing out how this developed, you know, how we go from magic simply being a sin to magic being a heresy and magic doers being organized like in a certain kind of way. And it wasn't all magic doers. There were all kinds of people practicing all kinds of magic that were never prosecuted under the witchcraft acts. 
just engaging in necromancy even, right? Straight up, you know, conjuring demons. That's sinful, but you're not in a pact with the devil to overthrow Christianity. That's what the inquisitors thought that the witches were. It was heresy as sedition, not, oh, you're just a sinful person summoning demons. And you can count on one hand almost how many people were executed for what we might think of as like actual necromancy. But between 40 and 60,000 women were executed, many, many more imprisoned and things like this. But this is, again, this is a conspiracy theory. You have people like Nicholas Emmerich, or you have people like Bernard Guy in the, in the case of the Cathars, or Malleus Maleficarum and the Formicarius by Johann Snyder. You have these people basically formulating in their minds what's going on. And then torturing people to find the answers. And of course, torture someone enough, you'll get the answer. And then it reinforces itself, right? A witch hunter could buy a copy of Malleus Maleficarum, could read it, walk into a village like Matthew Hopkins did. And he could say, basically, has anything bad happened here? Well, it's 1470. Of course, bad things are happening. Like, it's awful. And then the process begins. The easiest way to get out of being prosecuted is to name other people. And you get these chain reactions like we had Salem or in Connecticut. So, with our historical lens focused, we're finally ready to discuss the end result of those hundreds of years of moral panics, the uniquely Satan-obsessed era of the 1980s and early 1990s in the United States and Canada. We just covered the way that fears of satanic conspiracies involving child sacrifice have flared up throughout the past few thousand years of Judeo-Christian history. And also, I understand that many of you are too young to remember this, but there's just no question that during that era, the 80s and early 90s, the obsession with this topic shifted into overdrive. As to why this was the case, Dr. Sledge has a thoughtful answer. I think that what caused the satanic panic beginning in the 80s has everything to do with the post-war decline of the United States. In the same way that the Black Death, in many ways, cracked European civilization, and it's in the aftermath of the Black Death that we see the witch hunts, I think that ditto is the case in America, where we have a pretty systematic decline in America's prestige. By the 60s, the Vietnam War is clearly a disaster. By the 70s, we're sailing into significant recessions. The world oil crisis really is hitting America hard. The recession of the early 80s was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Unemployment rates were lowest at that point than they were since the Great Depression. And it's really bizarre to think how bad the recession was in the early 80s. Because I think we have this image of Wall Street getting rich or something, like the greed is good. And of course, those guys were getting rich, but the average working class Americans were doing quite poorly. That in the combination of, I think, this sort of pining away for an earlier time where everything made sense and everyone was Christian and it was the Andy Griffith show or whatever, I think that ushered in the ages of Thatcher and Reagan. Even with Thatcher and Reagan in there, the situation continued to deteriorate. The recessions continued to get worse. And I think it was the combination of all of those things, a breakdown of social norms, even with like the hippies and stuff in the 60s, a breakdown of homogeneity in terms of what it meant to be an American. The social and economic breakdown that was going on through the early 80s, religious breakdown, family breakdowns. This is also the rise of the stranger danger phenomenon, which I think is very much tied to the satanic panic. You have people who are honest to goodness, just willing to rebel against it. You have people who are into heavy metal. You have people who are into nonconformity, like the punk movement and things like that. And I think that there was a cross-section of the population that really needed something to explain why things were going so badly. And conspiracy theories always function in those kinds of environments where things are going badly for whatever reason, something terrible happens, I don't know, 9-11 or what have you, something terrible happens, society is actually in a decline, 
And the easiest way for most people to explain it is there's one singular thing at fault, and it's the devil or Satanism or, or whatever. It's a kind of mental virus that really begins, I think, in the twilight of American political and economic hegemony. In areas in which the recession wasn't that bad, the panics weren't that bad. And as we roll into the 90s, not that the panic totally went away, but you don't have the same level of the kind of mass arrests and things like that that you saw typically through the 80s. As we get into the late 90s and as America comes out of this mess, at least with the dot-com bubble, the panic basically goes away, or at least in some form. American society was experiencing a kind of breakdown. And in those kinds of environments where people feel like their lives and livelihoods are being threatened... Picking out an enemy, whether it's the communists or the Satanists or whatever, that becomes a very attractive way of explaining why your whole town is falling apart. Well, it's the devil worshippers or something. When people talk about the satanic panic of the 80s, they may be talking about one of two things. The first is the main topic we'll be covering here, that is, the series of bizarre and seemingly impossible accusations made by very young children in various unrelated locations throughout the US and Canada against their caregivers, especially those who ran early childhood daycare centers. These scenarios flared up through the 80s, and the alleged crimes Range from run-of-the-mill sexual abuse to completely bizarre scenarios involving dozens or hundreds of perpetrators, ritual torture, scarring, and killing of young children, infants, and animals, and the supposed existence of extensive interstate or even international satanic sex abuse cults who perpetrated these living nightmares. In many cases, these panics led to widespread arrests and trial of apparently blameless adults in spite of the existence of essentially no physical evidence that any of these accusations ever even happened. Fortunately, these miscarriages of justice were almost all eventually overturned, but only after both the alleged perpetrator and the purported victims had had their lives ruined to one degree or another. In the first case, due to lingering suspicions about their having committed the worst crimes imaginable, and in many cases actual years-long prison sentences, and in the second case, because their memories were corrupted by made-up, implanted scenes of terrifying abuse that never happened. But before diving into that horrific mess, it's worth noting that there was a broader movement that could be termed a sort of Satanism obsession that touched on many, many aspects of cultural life in the U.S. during the same period. In his excellent review of the influence of the occult on mainstream culture and vice versa from the 60s through the 80s, titled Here's to My Sweet Satan, Author George Case reminds us of the truly astonishing proliferation of satanic and associated images that flowed through both counter- and mainstream culture during the period, from the obscure but somehow sinister lyrics of Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, to the smash success of iconic films like Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and The Omen, or even as anodyne an entertainment as the tame, played-for-laughs, non-spooky monsters of Scooby-Doo, well, because they always ended up being some ill-tempered but very human perpetrator, playing up the idea of ghosts and monsters for personal benefit was always a favorite with the young but already somewhat skeptical, fearful Jesuit. Case shows us how the whole culture embraced a dance with the dark side as the post-war economy flared and then sputtered, and very real failures of institutions and the monoculture fragmented American life. 
Having been a child and then teenager during the 80s and early 90s, I'm uniquely attuned to this cultural obsession. I remember just getting into the first version of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, only to have my level-headed, calm-but-religious mom express some concerns about the potentially demonic implications that the game might have. She, of course, had heard the entirely apocryphal story about a teen's suicide over the death of his character that was later fictionalized in the terrible early Tom Hanks movie Mazes and Monsters, and so wanted to make sure her nerdy child wasn't on the role-playing road to hell. Needless to say, a Ouija board was not getting anywhere near the Jesuit household. That's how the real demons get you. Yeah, those things creep me out to this day, even though I'm pushing 50, I'm very aware that the Ouija board's whole eerie effect is just an unconscious muscular tick called the idiomotor response, and demonic possession is silly. In the immortal words of Philip Larkin, They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. The explosion of spooky, occult, or demonic shit in the period is hard to overstate. For example, though overheated news stories on the topic continue to this day, the 80s were the height of the poison or razor blades in your kid's Halloween candy panic. Which was based on a real, genuinely horrifying story from 1974, where a father deliberately poisoned his own son's pixie stick, blamed it on someone his kid had trick-or-treated, and tried to collect the life insurance policy he had recently taken out on the boy. Yeah, by the early 80s, every mom had digested that grim bit of news, then the many fake stories that grew out of it, and then the subsequent, almost entirely apocryphal tales of razor blades and candy apples and such. This was all weirdly tied into the perceived rise of Satanism at the time, that somehow the combination of spooky Halloween and the supposed efforts to poison or maim children via tasty treats were an outgrowth of the machinations of Beelzebub and his many, many secret human followers. This was clearly the subtext of the then-famous trial in which parents of one teen who killed himself and another who had horrifically maimed himself attempting suicide after listening to a Judas Priest album sued the band, claiming they had deliberately put back-masked, subliminal messages into a song that then prompted the kid's subsequent actions. Why would the band do this? Because they loved the devil and wanted to spread his message of hate and violence or something. We know this sounds like a stretch, but trust him. It was all somehow connected in the middle-class parent brain. Absolutely. The general tenor of the times was that Satanists were everywhere, secretly infiltrating everything. And as Case's book points out, the more that conservative, religious groups treated the often fairly ironic, sometimes satirical, and generally benign experimentations with occult materials in youth culture as deadly serious assaults on both Christianity and common decency, and then reacted accordingly. That is, with completely over-the-top panic. That situation, of course, only made the very occult shit the squares were freaking out about more appealing to edgy teens everywhere, leading to more Satan-affirming music and imagery, thus leading to more Christian backlash, in a perverse feedback loop that led both groups to feel they were under siege by an implacable, irredeemable foe. One of the most egregious examples of this sort of thinking was covered in the Three Paradise Lost documentaries about the arrest, conviction, and eventual freeing of the so-called West Memphis Three a group of teens who were blamed for the horrific torture murders of three young boys in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993. The questionable evidence against the accused was unquestionably bolstered in the minds of the investigators by the fact that the suspects were the kind of kids who listened to heavy metal music and did weird pseudo-satanic rituals in the woods. So, of course, when a horrific crime came along, there was no real question who they should presume the perps were. After all, as a decade of cultural panics had taught them, the Satanists were secretly everywhere. 
Lest you believe that the law enforcement types who promulgated this blame the metalheads approach were insincere, I invite you to visit the Internet Archive, where you can enjoy the absolutely delightful presentation, The Law Enforcement Guide to Satanic Cults. Due to the graphic nature of this program, viewer discretion is advised. I'm Gordon Coulter. For many years I served as a law enforcement officer. Today it's my privilege to host this program on a little known area in law enforcement, but important to every small community and every large city across our vast country. It's the area of satanic cults and how they impact our families, our children, and our communities. Old Gordo is really selling himself short in the voiceover here, as the caption makes sure you're aware that he is a cop slash pastor, and therefore you better listen to the real hard-hitting shit he's about to lay down, you feel? I feel you. Preach, officer. With Reverend Columbo Van Helsing on the case, it's a sure bet we're on the road to stamping out this satanic menace before it threatens our well-scrubbed, innocent, white teens. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. Many cults fall under the protection of the United States Constitution, the freedom of religion. When we talk of cults and Satanism from a law enforcement perspective, we have to tread lightly. That is one of the reasons it is so difficult to investigate Satanic cult activities. We know what the Satanic cult professes to believe. We know what their potential for violence might be if they choose to be true to their belief. We even have evidence, here and there, that leads us to believe that some sort of rituals are taking place. However, unless we catch them actually breaking the law, or find evidence that leads directly to participants in some illegal activity, we have no case. Goddamn pinko commie simp ACLU. What we need to do, Jesse, is just get down in the filth with these animals and crack some fucking skulls. I'll teach them. We are definitely going to have to limit your exposure to Charles Bronson movies, Dana. Next, the video turns its spotlight on one Eric Pryor, a self-reported former Satanist who gives us a tour of a local neighborhood park which just happens to be absolutely rife with Satanic activity. When I was a practicing occultist, oftentimes I would come into this park and uh, practice on various different holidays, uh, lunar holidays and occultic holidays, and we'd actually have rituals in the park when we didn't have a space to do rituals indoor. Uh, so what I'd like to do is take you into the park and just kind of show you one of the places that you would start asking your questions and start looking to see, you know, what the occultists are up to. There's two different communities that use this park. One is the pagan or occultic community, and the other community is, of course, the homosexual community. Interestingly enough, uh, they go hand in hand. Did he just say that the gay community and the devil worshippers go hand in hand? He did, indeed, Dana. But there's a lot more where that came from. Upon entering the park, I mean, you can see they've already got started. This is a pentacle. Now, right over here, I can see on a tree here, there's an inverted cross. Now, this is satanic. Well, it's actually fairly fresh, too. This here, of course, is a bastardization of Christianity, and it's a very common symbol. Obviously, they probably had a party or, or a ritual here uh, within the past night or two. This is what I'm talking about. What you're looking at here is called Voodoo Vivi. This is kind of like a coat of arms, if you will, uh, for the demonic. And someone has made it very clear uh, they were probably worshipping Set, because it, it says Set here, so it's pretty obvious. Now, of course, we don't have the benefit of the visuals in this here podcast, but as our guide walks through this unassuming public park, 
It appears that the denizens of Satan have just festooned every available surface with super obvious ritual symbols. Now, we're not the kind of folks who will just cast aspersions on every earnest, credulous presentation designed to stoke the irrational fears of the public, especially the part of the public licensed to carry guns as part of their jobs. What are you talking about? You are exactly that kind of folks. Oh yeah, I guess what I just said was obviously untrue. But it wasn't as blatantly full of shit as the idea that this dude just happened to find an example of every sort of satanic cult graffiti he needed to illustrate his points by wandering around the nearest average urban park on a random day. And wouldn't you know it, some enterprising young skeptical smartass journalist actually tracked down the history of this bizarre piece of 90s cultural flotsam, and it turns out that the producers indeed just created a cynical made-for-hire bullshit tape designed specifically to be sold to cops and gun enthusiast types who had already bought into the general fear of the devil's minions that was in the air at the time. Not that anyone bothered to tell Gordon Coulter, who again is just as hilariously sincere as can be. The article's author, Harmon Leon, writing for Mel Magazine Online, gives us the inside story of how this thing came to pass. Apparently, an enterprising independent producer approached the man who now owns the largest Glock megastore in the United States. Some sentences that describe your homeland are like Lord of the Rings-level fantasy to European, you know. I am well aware. And yet, there are Glock megastores here, and this guy now owns the biggest one. Anyway, the gun guy decided he could probably sell the final product to the kind of gun nuts who subscribed to his company's mailers and who were presumably itching for an opportunity to dirty Harry some perforations in the local satanic punk before he rips the guts out of a cheerleader to honor Samhain or some hippie Manson shit like that. Leon also tracked down a production assistant who basically confirms the suspicions of everyone who had seen this thing, that the graffiti in the park is a little too convenient, and that he shares the authors, my, and every other viewer with a brain in his or her head's opinion that our eager former Satanist guide spent an hour or so before the camera showed up, traipsing through the park drawing crude versions of every vaguely occultic symbol he could dream up to add some weight to his subsequent presentation. There's plenty more weird-slash-hilarious material in this tape, but the capper comes when all of a sudden Mr. Cop Pastor Mustache Grandpa peels back a canvas tarp to reveal a 90s bikini model festooned in dotted sharpie marker lines indicating the many, many places where the Satanists would carve up her mostly naked body. He points out each of these in turn, which represent the wounds an investigator should expect to find on a victim of Satanic ritual sacrifice. Given that the woman is pretending to be unconscious, and that her host is wearing the cospiest of cospy sweaters, this scene reads as highly disturbing in 2022. But even in its time, this had to be pretty fucking strange, right? You'd think so. Certainly, it's now one of my greatest life regrets that I didn't, as a smarmy, irony-obsessed 90s college student, have a copy of this to get drunk and watch with my friends. And it's not the only earnest pseudo-documentary put out by the squares to address the largely imaginary satanic invasion of the United States. Another is... Jesuit, how many times now have you paused to add another aside before getting to the actual point of the section of the show? I know. But this is my era unicorn. It's the first historical period where I was a fully functioning adult fearful Jesuit, absorbing my culture in real time even as I was entering maturity. This is the shit that shaped me, for better or worse. And given that I grew up in the South, you best believe I had plenty of Satan hysteria happening all around me. I was surrounded by young soldiers for Christ, clad in their youth ministry retreat shirts on the way to their before-school-day prayer meetings. And they, and especially their parents, took this whole Satan invading the culture thing very, very seriously. After all, didn't you know, we were only a few years away from the millennium, and plenty of people expected that, in the words of Tom Waits. Hallelujah. 
But you're right. I've been circling around this topic for a long time, like Billy Pilgrim sitting in an interstellar zoo, avoiding the memory of February 13th, 1945. Maybe turn down the pretension just a tad? Okay, okay. Like Yosarian finally confronting what's under Snowden's arm. That's turning down the pretension? Sorry. But it's time for me to face the music, like Hal Incandenza finally taking his turn to speak at his college admission interview. I give up. Okay, seriously, I'm done now. I'll stop. But it's true. I did all of these interviews and all of this research, and I'm still kind of loath to write this part of the script because the story we have to tell here is just unrelentingly bleak. Mentally ill parents igniting a blaze of fear for children's welfare that eventually leads to emotionally scarred kids, wrongfully imprisoned adults, and communities where the sense of safety and trust is exploded, maybe never to be fully repaired. So I'm going to start telling this story. But I did keep one really funny satanic panic topic in reserve, and I plan to just drop it in the middle of this section whenever I feel like it gets too awful to contemplate. So consider this your warning. We are officially notified. With that, I want to introduce the co-author of a remarkable book called Satan's Silence. It was published in 1995 when the embers of the full panic were only beginning to die away, and when the suggestion of demonic influence on a seemingly senseless crime was still a powerful weapon to be wielded against innocent bystanders. That's a little something we call foreshadowing, folks. But our interviewee's experience with this phenomenon started years before her book was finally published. We'll let her walk you through her early experiences herself. Please note. Due to circumstances beyond our control, large sections of our incredibly interesting interview turned out to have some extremely poor sound quality. We've done our level best to improve the situation, but it's still pretty lousy sounding, in spite of our efforts. We hope you'll bear with us. We believe her story is so fascinating that it is totally worth suffering through some audio issues. My name is Debbie Nathan. I'm a journalist and have been for decades now. I got involved with Satanic Panic because I was living in El Paso, Texas. This was back in 86. I was working at the Daily Paper, USA Today, provincial paper. I also had my child in daycare, my four-year-old. In El Paso, Texas, we had a daycare satanic sex abuse case that really roiled the whole city, and particularly parents like me, who were terrified to have our kids in daycare anymore. I actually never covered this story while I was at the paper, but then I started freelancing for the national press, primarily about immigration, but I was doing a lot of writing for the Village Voice in New York City. I had a wonderful editor who was a really, really brilliant feminist. She got a hold of me one day in the fall of 86. I was very pregnant at the time. I was not very mobile. And she said, I want you to go out to L.A. because I just saw this uh, 60 Minutes show about this case, the McMartin case, and it was skeptical about these people's guilt. And I was wondering if you could go out there and in the next three weeks prepare for me a long essay about this case. And it was weird because the McMartin case had started a lot earlier And when my child was about two years old, I remember rocking in the rocking chair with her and hearing about the McMartin case on the radio. So I guess this would have been in about 84. And I remember hearing about these old ladies and middle-aged women. And I think the idea that was being sort of put out at the time was, if these kinds of people could do this, then anyone could do this. And we don't know what's right around the corner or under the bush, and this could happen to your child. It was really frightening. As soon as Ellen Willis, who was my editor at The Voice, said, hey, I'd like you to check into this, all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, it's true, there's something really weird about this case in El Paso, too. 
And I told her that I couldn't go to LA because I was eight months pregnant. But as a matter of fact, we had a case that seemed almost identical in El Paso, and I could do that from here. I didn't know anything about these cases at the time. I had no global perspective. Two women, one was in her late 30s, the other was early 40s. They were both mothers. They had no records at all, not even parking tickets. And they had both been convicted by the time I had this conversation with my editor, and they'd been sent away for a very, very long time to prison. I started doing this reporting, just kind of the nuts and bolts stuff. Okay, they've been accused of basically torturing, sexually torturing a very large group of kids over many, many months. And they've been accused of taking this group of three-year-olds and four-year-olds and walking them a mile away to one of the teacher's houses spending a long time there taking their clothes off and torturing them sexually and then dressing them again and walking back. Time, motive, opportunity. Could these people have done this? Did they have some reason to do it? They didn't seem to have a motive that I could figure out. They didn't have any criminal history. Nobody was saying that they had a history of mental illness. So then I said to myself, did they have the opportunity meaning could they have gotten away with it? So I remember going to the daycare and I saw that all the classrooms had great big glass windows. And so there was no privacy. I thought, all right, let me see if they could have actually walked to this house to do this to the children during the, whatever it was, 45 minutes or an hour that they had for lunch. And I remember sticking my newborn into a stroller And then I had my four and a half year old holding my hand and we we did this walk, just the three of us. And it took me forever with two kids, with a stroller and a four-year-old. We just walked to the house and back and that in itself took the entire time. So that didn't even include the torture model station, dressing and undressing. And by the way, none of these children had ever had so much as a garment disordered. So I thought, okay, there's something really wrong with this. And so what I have to figure out is why did this happen? Where did these accusations come from? The defense attorney actually lived next door to me. He was very passionate that these people are falsely accused. He was very eager to give me the discovery materials, including the child interviews that were done by the social workers and the police. You know, reading these interviews, it was very clear that these kids were undergoing a tremendous amount of pressure and suggestion. As I delved into this further, started finding out that a lot of the techniques that had been used by the police had come literally from McMartin, that the McMartin social worker and I believe some of the other people involved in interviewing the kids had actually come out to El Paso to train the people that were doing this in El Paso. There was a lot of talk during this case in El Paso about how this was happening all over the country and the children were all talking about the same things. And so therefore, there must be this at least national, if not international, satanic conspiracy to do this to children in daycare. The theories range from simplistic to really complex. I guess the easiest one was the Satanists just want to do bad things to kids. And then the more complicated one was the Satanists want to mind control the kids. So they want to do these sexual tortures and then, I guess, implant some kind of signals or something psychologically or mentally in the kids so that when the kids are grown-ups, the Satanists will snap their fingers or say some code word or something, and then the kids will, sort of like Manchurian candidates, they will become satanic adults. But I started realizing that they were all sort of teaching each other. The conspiracy, really, I'm using that word in quotes, but people were traveling all over the country and spreading these theories and these techniques, which have since been shown to be very faulty. 
I wrote my first piece for the Village Voice about the El Paso case. And there wasn't a lot of skeptical journalism being done back. I noticed, interestingly, that very few of the people that were doing this journalism had children, because back then there were very few women still in these rooms. Most of the people that were doing news were men. And the only ones who seemed to be skeptical were the ones where their wives were home taking care of the kids. But at least they had kids, so they saw how kids behaved. I was one of the only women that was even looking at these cases, and I was very grateful that I had children and kind of had that insight into what children's behavior is actually like. Now Debbie's on the case, and we have plenty of reason to doubt the established narrative of satanic rapist daycares popping up across the nation. But it's important to acknowledge that the concern that eventually fueled the panic was born out of some genuinely heroic, crusading efforts to bring real, awful, usually intra-family sexual abuse into the consciousness of a public that really, really didn't want to hear about it, and law enforcement authorities who were even more resistant. Ms. Nathan's book, co-authored by defense attorney Mike Snedeker helps us understand how little attention was paid to these cases in the decade before the panic. As the book notes, the situation prior to the late 70s was absurdly skewed in favor of defendants in the most common incest cases, which inevitably involved pubescent girls making accusations against their fathers. In a typical case, after the arraignment, the father would remain in the home with the victim before trial so he could have plenty of time to coerce her into recanting before the proceedings could even begin. And if dear old dad was the sole breadwinner, a conviction could have economically devastating impacts on the family. As a result, many mothers pressured their daughters to recant simply to keep everyone from falling into poverty. Oh my God. Then, even if against the odds the father actually ended up prosecuted, the most likely scenario would end with him pleading guilty and going home to the family on probation with a promise to go to therapy, though attendance at even that meager requirement could be spotty, and failure to attend or suddenly piecing out of treatment permanently would often go unreported by the therapists. This is sickening. Why wasn't there more outcry? As the authors note, the left-wingers didn't want to support tough-on-crime approaches to anything, given their broader conflict with police and prosecutorial overreach against many defendants, especially the impoverished. And meanwhile, the right didn't want to encourage anything that could be perceived as contributing to the breakup of families, or on the economic side that could increase the number of people on welfare. I can see why you were shying away from this topic now, Jesuit. It's fucking bleak. It gets so much worse. Like, for example, this horrific revelation. In the pre-advocacy period, doctors would often implicitly blame wives for their husbands' disgusting incestual acts. The authors focused their readers' attention on one particularly repulsive but influential example, a Dr. Roland Summit, who came up with a theory to explain the incest dynamic. He called it, Actually, Dana, why don't you tell us? You're a cruel man. He called it the family romance dynamic. Ew. <laughs> Look on the bright side. I'm the one who has to do the actual explaining. Okay, deep breath. Here goes. Dr. Summit starts with this highly sympathetic description of the perpetrator. Quote, 
The hapless father, who would never approach a child on the playground, now that he has his own children, naturally felt a certain erotic attraction for the, again, please understand that I am quoting here, the delicious little creatures he has spawned. Wait, this is a quote? Like an actual quote from a medical professional? Yes, and you're not alone in that reaction. The authors note with disgust that this married 40-something father of daughters implied it was perfectly common for men to see their children as sexually delicious. I will never stop showering. I know the feeling. But Dr. Summit goes on to explain that as the middle-aged man sees his horizons shrinking, his bitch wife... Jesuit is lightly editorializing here, but the original sentiment is pretty close. She isn't even around to take care of his needs because she has the nerve to instead work on her career. She did this not because the evolving state of the American economy, inflation, and a series of price shocks had made two earner incomes a necessity for many families, but rather because this preening narcissist felt, again we're quoting, depressed at the loss of her youth and the waning of her girlish attraction, and therefore was no longer, quote, invested in endorsing her husband's ego needs. Or, in other words, as the authors characterize it, it is the wife's fault her husband's eye is wondering, because she is a shitty, shitty partner. At the same time that his marriage is fizzling through no fault of his own, this domestic Humbert Humbert realizes his once enchanting toddler daughter is now, another icky quote incoming, quote, an adolescent who was learning to transmit the magical vibrations our society requires of the emergent woman. Mercurial, kittenish, provocative, enigmatic, with the fragile innocence of a child mixed with the vaguely destructive allure of the temptress. She's the opposite of mom, focused on her father's needs, a good, traditional wife. When is this part of the show over? Not for quite a while, Dana. Apologies. So, the good doctor asks rhetorically, how is this man supposed to resist such temptation? Especially when his wife is, quote, remarkably oblivious to the situation, since it frees her up from meeting her husband's sex-pestering demands. Please note that Jesuit's original idea for this part of the script was to parody Dr. Summit's horrific scenario with a satirical skit in which porn performers who are used to filming step-parent sex fantasies are confronted by Dr. Summit's terrifying vision of modern American family life and walk off the set in protest. But honestly, it just never came out funny. This whole thing is just too vile to parody. But as horrifying as all of that was, it's great that the authors provide that background so that we can understand that the pendulum was originally swung so far against sex abuse victims that the crimes perpetrated against them were almost never addressed in a way that promoted either justice or healing. So it's not surprising that victim advocates would, by the late 70s, be full-throatedly in favor of believing victims as the pendulum slowly began to swing in the direction of really addressing and dealing with these sorts of crimes. A similar dynamic was at play in the early days of the Me Too movement, for similar reasons. Though, we should note, in spite of the well-publicized fears of many men at the time, no overreach of the kind that led to the satanic panic has resulted from prosecuting prominent men who have been exposed for their well-attested actual crimes against women over whom they could exert power. Indeed, and the book notes the other major cultural forces that contributed in the years before the panic, including the fact that between 64 and 73, the percentage of Americans who acknowledged believing in a literal Satan went from 37 to 50 percent and kept rising for the next two decades. Of course, they also note that the fear of devil worshippers overrunning Mayberry were hilariously off-base, as most of these supposed Satanists were white, upper-middle-class suburban dudes who worshipped the devil by getting together with a few brohemes, reading some vaguely occult-sounding stuff from Anton LaVey or some other dusty book, 
and then accompany all of that with some half-assed improvised rituals, songs, chants, or other activities they picked up from popular culture, slasher movies, metal lyrics, etc. We have put together this advanced audio model of what two of these perpetrators might sound like while performing their evil rites. Truly chilling. Then in 1973, the supposedly nonfiction book Sybil, which was eventually turned into a hugely influential 1976 TV movie starring Sally Field, kicked off a wave of mostly young, mostly women coming to believe that they had multiple personality disorder as a result of repressed trauma. And the most important book spawned from that wave was, actually, let's bring back our other expert, Justin Sledge. How excited are you to have two different simultaneous experts? I'm uncomfortable describing my level of excitement, Dana. Here, Dr. Sledge fills in the story of the 1980 bestseller that most directly impacted the satanic panic phenomenon. Michelle Remembers is a book written by a psychiatrist and his patient who eventually became his wife. You can already begin to see that something's off in this. This patient experienced what we would now call repressed memories. And those repressed memories, which her psychiatrist very actively was involved in helping to recover, this recovered memory stuff also plays a big role in the UFO community, and it has a really problematic history there as well. What ends up happening is that Michelle remembered that in the 1950s, she was the victim of horrifying abuse at the hands of her father and a giant coven of Satanists. Everything from sexual abuse to eating babies, you know, the, the things that one imagines from the satanic panic, just all kinds of horrible stuff having horns and a tail sewn onto her body and then ripped off, forced abortions and all kinds of just dreadful. It's a horrifying read in that way. Michelle remembers argued that she remembered all this. She was able to recover these memories. And in the process of recovering these memories, and by the way, the therapies that they use to recover these memories are completely debunked. We now know without a doubt, you can imprint memories on people, false memories. And this can be very, very, very mentally scarring to people. And also, we can cross-check what happened in terms of who her father really was and why are her sisters not mentioned in any of this. And she says she was taken in some satanic rituals that lasted for like 50 days, but we don't ever see her being checked out of school or missing school when this kind of abuse was alleged to be happening. So there's just really good reason to believe that none of it happened. She also was converted to Catholicism in one of her therapy sessions, which is also her psychiatrist's religion, which... Again, converting people to a religion during a therapy session. There's a lot of red flags in this. We're going to come back to this question of recovered memories shortly, but the important thing to note here is that Michelle Remembers had the effect of sprouting up similar recovered memory scenarios from psychiatric patients across the country. Almost exclusively women, as it turns out. Who, when the same psychiatric practices were applied to them, started remembering abuse scenarios similar to the titular Michelle's. Similar, that is, both in the content and in the total lack of any evidence that the recovered memory crimes even happened. The ground in the early 80s was thus well-seeded for the full-blown nationwide panic attack that was soon to begin. And so, Ms. Nathan takes us through the first big stories that would eventually balloon, balloon into a continent-spanning hysteria. Mary Ann Barber was a woman in Kern County, California, which is where Bakersfield is, north of uh, L.A., 
And she was the step-grandmother to a couple of little girls whose mother, when she'd been a teenager, actually had been molested by a close family member. In addition to that, Marianne clearly was hospitalized right around the time that this was going on. She had been in a mental hospital. Anyway, for one reason or another, Marianne was so obsessed with the idea that these kids had been sexually abused that she started doing very close examinations of their genitalia and questioning them all the time. And they, they were very young girls keeping them up all night and herself staying up all night for days on end and her ideations about what had happened just got weirder and weirder and then she eventually contacted the authorities in Kern County and told them that these little girls had been molested and the more attention that they paid to this the more rococo and sort of bizarre Marianne's stories got and eventually these accusations not only were taken very seriously and the immediate family was accused, but then a bunch of neighbors and friends of the little girl's parents were also accused. And after a little while, it was a full-blown ritual abuse, not daycare, but neighborhood case, where the girls were supposed to be tied up in hooks to the ceiling and sex parties. And that was as far as we could tell, the earliest case where these accusations were taken very seriously in a criminal justice context, and a whole bunch of people were put on trial, and a whole bunch of people were convicted and sentenced to just hundreds and hundreds of years of imprisonment. Even if the case that Marianne Barber's delusions had initiated had been the only one of its kind, the impact would have been horrific. But of course it wasn't. The book explains that more than 100 communities had child sex abuse ring accusations between 1983 and 1987. And these stories infiltrated the culture to the point that in 1992, Joan Goddamn Baez, 60s folk icon, released the very earnest song Play Me Backwards about adults dressed as Mexicans slaughtering a baby, removing its organs, and making other people play with them. That can't be real. Thanks for the setup, Dana. After the Marianne Barber debacle came the first and certainly most memorable of the many accusations against daycare workers that would form the beating heart of the panic, the McMartin Preschool case. Up the road, or down the road, I guess you could say, in Manhattan Beach, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, a really old daycare in this pretty prosperous community where like, all the matrons of the town sent their children while they did volunteer work. So the kids are all at this daycare called the McMartin Preschool. And it's run by this family. It was a family Christian scientist, very well respected in the community, the McMartin family. Just for years and years, people have been sending their kids to this preschool. One day in 1983, a woman dropped her child off at this preschool and just literally dropped the child off, didn't come in to introduce the child, just left the child like in the parking lot or something with a little note, two and a half year old kid. The woman who ran the daycare, her name was Virginia McMartin. She was in her 70s at the time. She was a grandma. And she saw the little kid, and she was pretty disturbed by this. How could somebody just leave their child like this unattended? But the mother came back. Her name was Judy Johnson, 
the staff at the daycare, the preschool talked to her and felt sorry for her. They could see that she was having a rough time. She was going through a divorce. And they decided that they would allow this child to enroll. So, out of the kindness of their hearts, these caregivers turned the strange act of a mothering crisis into a positive. But unfortunately for the owners and staff of the school, Judy Johnson's issues didn't get any better. To once again quote the book, That summer, Judy Johnson became preoccupied with the condition of her younger son's anus. What the fuck, Jesuit? I'm sorry, but I do feel like I warned you. Judy was very concerned about the fact that this little boy had some kind of a rash or an irritation in his genital area and his scrotum. And she kept putting medicine on it, like salve or something or desitin or something like that. And it wasn't getting any better. And she took him to the doctor and they said, he's got some kind of an irritation. Maybe he picked it up from you. Do you have a yeast infection? So anyway, it wasn't getting any better. She was getting more and more distraught by this. She really started suspecting somebody had done something to this child. She thought maybe it's her ex or maybe it's somebody at the daycare. And she starts questioning the child repeatedly and the child's genitals aren't getting any better. And she finally takes him to a hospital in L.A. that has a specialized unit to do exams for children who are suspected of having been sexually abused. By then, Judy was saying that this young man who was the son of one of the daycare operators, Judy says, I think it was him, and the kid has this genital situation with irritation. And so the doctor said, well, the mother says that the child was anally abused by this teacher. And so they wrote that up as a report, and that's how that case started to snowball. The book goes into some additional detail on how Judy eventually developed her idea that the rash was related to some sort of sexual abuse. Her suspicions were heightened when her son was running around pretending to give people invisible shots. Judy believed he had no experience with injections, so she pressed him over and over until finally getting him to admit that Ray, one of the teachers at the McMartin Preschool, a man whose colleagues and friends characterized him as a friendly, harmless drifter, whose job at McMartin was perhaps the first sign he was getting his life in order. Yeah, so Judy pestered her son until he admitted that Ray took his temperature. That's it. But that's all Judy needed to conclude that the thermometer must have been Ray Buckley's penis. Now, unfortunately, we have to inform you that a doctor examined the boy and found none of the, and again, we hate to even make you have to contemplate this, obviously horrific physical trauma that would have occurred had a fully grown man penetrated a two-year-old boy. But nonetheless, the concerned, raving mother managed to make headway with the cops. And this is the point where the roller coaster fully left the rails. The cops sent out letters to 200 or so parents asking them to question their kids about any signs of sexual abuse of the kind that Johnson had woven out of her bizarre and disturbing fantasies. Naturally, a bunch of these parents fucking freaked out and began questioning their kids relentlessly, determined to figure out if they had been subject to similar horrors. Most kids denied at first, but under sustained, repeated parental questioning, they eventually confirmed and then elaborated on the tales of terror. But of course, this is where the problem came in. The initial denials were ignored, and the children were pressed until they came up with something. And then between the parents harping and the kids' fertile imaginations, those seeds of confirmation turned into elaborate Baroque tales of pure terror, scenes that were unimaginable because they didn't happen. The police put out a letter saying, ask your children whether Ray, whether he's done anything, whether he's, you know, hurt them, molested them, whatever they said. A panic just started immediately. And it's always like this. It happened in every case back then. The parents 
start panicking. They start calling each other up. They start having meetings, which the DA's office often or the police and the social workers help organize, and they all start sharing allegations. And as soon as the parents start to ask their children, hey, did this happen to you? They've heard at the meetings that the child was going to deny it at first because they're terrified. So you need to ask them over and over by the early winter of 84. It had really gone into the satanic ritual abuse material, and everybody was talking about that. And I was lucky enough to look at some of the mother's diaries, that they were told to keep diaries of the progression of their children's allegations. And you see in these diaries, a younger child in the family makes an allegation, and then that child gets a whole lot of attention because that child has been terribly traumatized and needs lots of love and attention from the parents. And then, like the child in the family who's a year older, who also went to the school, who has nothing to say and can't remember anything, starts really getting upset because they're not being paid attention to, and so eventually they start talking about it. In the McMartin case, for the vast majority of the kids, by the time they got into that interview situation, they'd already been talked to so many times by their parents and by other people in the community informally. And so you can't really trace back what happened. But this happened, I mean, literally in every case that I looked at. Those interviews with childcare professionals, people who were supposed to be uniquely suited to handling these kinds of discussions with children, sound downright terrifying. Quoting the book, The staff held their sessions with the children in a cheerily painted room overflowing with juvenile furniture and toys. To put the children at ease, the women dressed clown-like in mismatched clothes and multicolored stockings and sat on the floor with the youngsters. Hey there, boys and girls! I'm Patty, the anti-pedophilia clown. I need to talk to you about some scary stuff that we think happened to each and every one of you at school. Can I sit down there with you? Well, we were kind of playing with blocks here. Oh, well, then I guess you're just going to sit down anyway? They talked in gentle, high-pitched voices and encouraged discussion about genitals and sexual behavior that the young children hardly knew words for. You know, sometimes when somebody does a bad touch on you, it can make your little penis or vagina feel all yucky. Did anybody ever do that to you? Hey, uh, I know I'm only three over here, but shouldn't somebody call the police on this lunatic? And they used a new diagnostic device, anatomically correct dolls, which came with breasts, vaginas, penises, anuses, and pubic hair. Cat got your tongue? Well, me, Billy. <laughs> Hi there, kids. Can we be friends? Billy here knows it's not embarrassing at all to talk about our private parts. So we can help the police arrest and prosecute your teachers based solely on your coerced testimony. Isn't that right, Billy? It sure is, Patty. Why, if you'll help me out, I can take off my pants and... See, everybody? That thing there is my penis. But I'm all grown up, so I've got hair all around there. Sally, have you ever seen a penis like that? Don't be shy. Now, if you'll bend me over, Patty. Yuck, yuck, all the kids can see I have an anus when my poop comes out. 
It's just like their anuses, only sometimes grown-ups try to put something up there. Did any of you kids have something like that happen? The children were instructed that if they were too scared or embarrassed to describe their secrets, characters like Mr. Snake or Mr. Alligator could speak for them. The CAI interviewers told the children that feeding details about the abuse into a secret machine, a microphone connected to a videotape recording machine, would dispose of the secrets forever and make the child feel much better. Jesus, lady, you're scaring the shit out of us. Well, maybe if everybody talks to the secret machine, this can all be over. The staff... Okay, we're sure it wasn't as bad as that sketch just implied, but it's easy to see how the insistence by supposedly responsible and again often very well-intentioned adults could lead to kids with strong imaginations conjuring up just the sorts of scenarios the adults seemed to be asking for. What was the effect? The authors quote from one session with an eight-year-old who started the interview with no memories of abuse. The interviewer, that is, the adult in the room, said the following. We had a big meeting the other day with all the mommies and the daddies. They all talked and they said, boy, are our kids brave. And some of them said, my kid didn't tell any secrets. And I said, I know, I'm sorry, but I think they will. And they said, we don't know if Keith has a good enough memory, but maybe the puppets do. After this, young Keith insisted he had a good enough memory, and soon he was telling stories about being sodomized as the adults supposedly abusing him made pornography of his supposed abuse. Again, prior to this interview, there's no indication the boy had ever claimed to have been abused. But it's a sure bet that afterward, the memories that had been implanted by the interrogation process were as real to him as any others. And so the accusations began flying. Ray, the first employee who was accused, was later said to have tortured and killed various pets Quote, while dressed as a clown, fireman, policeman, Santa Claus, and clergyman. And nobody involved in the prosecution thought at least some of this testimony was insane? Maybe they did, but they seem to have kept any reservations they had quiet for the sake of the overall prosecution. Speaking of which, the case eventually made its way to the DA, who was in a tough re-election fight, and who immediately latched onto this high-profile mess as a way to shore up his law and order bona fides with a bunch of terrified parent voters. Meanwhile, Judy Johnson, the original typhoid Mary of this particular paranoid strain, kept coming up with stranger and more impossible accusations. The book provides a transcript of what she claims were notes she took down while interrogating her barely verbal three-year-old about his horrific experiences. Matthew feels that he left L.A. International in an airplane and flew to Palm Springs. Matthew went to the armory. The goat man was there. It was a ritual-type atmosphere. At the church, Peggy drilled a child under the armpits. Atmosphere was that of magic arts. Ray flew in the air. Peggy, Babe, and Betty were all dressed up as witches. The person who buried Matthew is Miss Betty. There were no holes in the coffin. Babs went with him on a train with an older girl where he was hurt by men in suits. Ray waved goodbye. Peggy gave Matthew an enema. Staples were put in Matthew's ears, his nipples, and his tongue. Babs put scissors in his eyes. She chopped up animals. Matthew was hurt by a lion, an elephant plate, 
A goat climbed up higher and higher and higher, then a bad man threw it down the stairs. Lots of candles were there, they were all black. Ray pricks his pointer finger, put it in the goat's anus. Old grandma played the piano. A baby's head was chopped off and the brains were burned. Peggy had a scissors in the church and she cut Matthew's hair. Matthew had to drink the baby's blood. Ray wanted Matthew's spit. I assume I hardly need bother noting there was no sign whatsoever of any of this, including the staples that had supposedly festooned young Matthew's body. Nor that the, again, barely verbal Matthew ever said any of what his mother reported. The authors note that this kind of word salad, which we were surprised to learn is the actual clinical term, would under normal circumstances certainly have led mental health and law enforcement authorities to conclude the person providing the testimony was delusional. Instead, the prosecution continued to leverage, if not these wild fantasies, at least Johnson's and her son's initial claims as part of their case. Incidentally, the fact that eventually all of these extremely damning videos and transcripts of poorly executed interrogations and bizarre fantasy accusations kept coming out, eventually police and prosecutors stopped keeping or sharing records of any of these scenarios, arguing that they were doing so to protect the kids, even though what they were obviously doing was trying to protect themselves from embarrassment at prosecuting on such transparently bizarre evidence. The preschool cases were not the only scenarios where well-meaning adults used various techniques that inadvertently put, put words in the mouths of those who couldn't possibly have formulated those ideas on their own. In our interview, Ms. Nathan talked about the parallels between child sex abuse recovered memories and a later phenomenon in which patients who were previously unable to communicate at all were suddenly able to do so fluently when assisted by a helper. It does seem like there are certain people in certain circumstances, and children would be one population for sure, where if they're pressured, they almost become like Ouija boards for the will of the person who is directing them to tell a story. Everyone knows how Ouija boards work, right? You have your planchette, you know, and it starts moving around on a board, and it starts making words, and it seems like something very supernatural, but everybody who studied this just says, it's underneath your consciousness, you're just communicating stuff that's coming out of your own mind. With facilitated communication, which is very popular in the late 80s, early 90s, with severely autistic children, there was a kind of a theory that developed in autistic treatment that the child really just has a problem verbalizing. You know, they can't use their voice. And so, but I mean, their minds are completely intact and they're just all there. They're connected to reality, to the outside world, but they just can't communicate. And so if you can bypass the verbal stuff, like speech, uh, and put their fingers on a keyboard and have somebody, and of course, you know, a lot of times their hands are just not coordinated enough to do that. But if you have somebody holding their hands or putting their hand on top of the child's hand or the, the autistic person's hand, then uh, you'll have communication. And so what happened was a lot of people who had someone's hand on top of them, helping them. And it turned out to be incredibly articulate. I mean, they were writing poetry, they were writing essays, there were children in grade school and high school that were taking philosophy classes and just doing great. And whatever the class was, math, you know, English, they were completely verbal. As long as somebody was holding their hand on top of the, of the keyboard. And it just seemed miraculous, and everybody was so excited because it seemed like autistic people really weren't as handicapped as had been thought. Then, there were some autistic people who started accusing their parents of being satanic ritual abusers. And so then that led to investigations of the parents and of criminal charges, I believe. 
And so then, of course, it became very important to know what is going on here. Like, where are these verbalizations coming from? And their experiments were done that showed very clearly that the person who was producing these verbalizations wasn't the autistic person. It was the person that was manipulating the keyboard on top of the fingers of the autistic person. And so that's very analogous to what happened with the children in these satanic ritual abuse cases. They became these um, sort of channels for someone else's ideas, someone else's thoughts, even though the person that was transmitting that those thoughts didn't really know what they were doing. It wasn't malicious. I think it's really important to point that out. So what actually happened with this case? Well, initially, seven people were arrested and charged with 115 separate crimes. Five of the accused had the charges against them dismissed before trial by a new district attorney. One of the others was acquitted at trial, and Ray was eventually acquitted of most charges and had a hung jury for the rest. The case against him was eventually dismissed. After years and a huge public firestorm, not one person was convicted of a single charge. Holy shit. Yeah. And before we leave this particular story, we want to take a moment to note an interesting piece of after-the-fact fact-checking Debbie Nathan performed years later. Because it's a simple revelation that explains one of the strange, previously unresolved aspects of the story. Any of the skeptics, any of the reporters, myself included, we could never figure out what the etiology or the cause of that rash was. I mean, she didn't imagine that rash or that irritation on that little boy. It was always the unanswered question. That's called the index. That's what started the case. Five or six years ago, I decided to go through the medical records again because, you know, as you might have guessed, there's been a lot of progress in pediatric medicine of how to evaluate and diagnose these signs and symptoms that used to be considered evidence of sexual abuse that turned out to be something much more benign in children. I dug them out again. I still have them archived. And I saw that this child, when he had been brought in, had a certain kind of strep that was cultured from his anus. And it turns out that since about the late 1990s, there was this explosion of research that found that it's very common for kids that age, particularly boys, to have this thing called a pediatric strep dermatitis. So it's a strep. It's not a fungus. It doesn't respond to antifungals. It doesn't respond to desipin. You know, you have to give the children antibiotics. It's as simple as that. It was just staring at me in the face. You have to remember that this case started in 1983, and this new research didn't come about until 17 years later, at least. And so that seems to be what caused this. And it's not anybody's fault. But the thing is, it became pretty obvious really quickly that the mom was very mentally ill and started accusing everyone and everything and started having all of these ideations that she would take to the DA's office about all the teachers, including the old ladies, flying the children hundreds of miles away on airplanes and killing goats and, and just all kinds of rituals. And uh, the DA's office would just be like, kind of on the one hand laughing about them and on the other hand doing nothing about them to stop this case. Because it was a very politically saving case, which is a whole other story. People were making their political careers out of this case. Fascinating. But back to the acquittals. Hopefully seeing the results of the highest profile case took the wind out of the panic. 
Not really. The wave of panic prosecutions spread across the country, affecting one community after another. Justin Sledge helps us understand one of the main reasons why. What's also really important to note about Michelle Rembers is that this book was already being shopped around as a bestseller. The psychiatrist that was going to publish it, her story was told in like, I think, Life magazine, the kind of magazine you would see at like the front of a supermarket. Even before the book dropped, he was offered hundreds of thousands of dollars for the forward to the, the hardcover and the softback. Everyone knew this was going to be a, a bestseller, and it was. And what ends up happening is that in the exact neighborhood where allegedly this abuse happened in the 50s, there was an anonymous tip line that you could call in to report child abuse. And someone called in on the tip line and said, Satanists are going to kidnap babies from maternity wards and sacrifice them on Halloween or something. Typically, right, in a child abuse hotline, if someone called in and said something like that, no one would take it seriously because it sounds completely crazy, because it is completely crazy. But after Michelle Remembers was published, it didn't seem crazy anymore. And sure enough, the media got a hold of it. There were police posted outside maternity wards. They found some dead animals in the forest nearby. And it went from there. And so once it happens in one town, well, if it's a giant network of satanic conspiracies all over the country, well, they're going to strike anywhere. And you begin to see this virus spread first into Canada. It actually begins in Canada and then slowly from the Pacific Northwest begins to spread rapidly, really takes root in the East Coast, then spreads throughout the rest of the United States and eventually hops a pond and has a big impact in the UK as well. So it spread rapidly and Michelle Rimbridge really is the text that jumped it off. That recovered memory stuff was really beta tested during the whole UFO wave of the 70s, where people allegedly were kidnapped by aliens. And the psychiatrists involved in all this basically did the process of implanting memories through hypnosis and other things. This is what I call conspiratorial comorbidity. You never get just one conspiracy theory. You almost always get some kind of comorbidity when it comes to these things. And I think that lurking in the background, the imagery of aliens kidnapping people and doing these terrible experiments on them is also tied back to medieval demonology and things like that, that so much of that mental landscape is so tied to demonological literature and things like that, that it's not surprising that these cases of recovered memory being beta tested during the UFO craze, really, of the 70s is also going to be instrumental in this whole uh, satanic panic business. So, as he noted, there was nothing particularly new about recovered memories since they had played such an important role in, for example, the burgeoning UFO movement. But it's another point he made that we want to focus in on, the role of the media. Nathan and Snedeker note that, in a sense, a whole industry grew up around promoting the idea that widespread ritual abuse was happening all across the U.S., bringing together strange bedfellows, including researchers, fundamentalist Christians, anti-pornography activists, feminists, and, of course, the media. And, as always, once fighting this imaginary menace became a source of income for some people, those professional anti-Satanists became a vocal advocacy group for the continuation of the public mania. Back in 1985, as the McMartin trial was brewing, news reports were breathless and didn't seem particularly interested in performing the kind of skeptical due diligence that Debbie Nathan was pursuing in her reporting for The Village Voice a year or so later. On the other hand, this 2020 reporter is confronted with the fact that responsible-seeming parents and even children claiming to be eyewitnesses or participants in these crimes are confirming that they indeed happened and that Satan was a big part of it. 
Police have found no proof, made no arrest. But that's no surprise. For nationwide, police are hearing strikingly similar horror stories, and not one has ever been proved. Take, for example, this case, the mother of a young victim who asked not to be identified. Usually they have the children kill the infants or the other kids. The children who were there actually right. were, what, were given knives? Yes, they were. And if they refused to do it, an adult, usually the child's father or mother would actually take the child's hand and make them kill the child. There's also this similar case that links child sex abuse with murder. The children were given, um, were given knives and told to go and stab those bodies. And this case now under police investigation involving young boys describing murder. Tell me what you were asked to do. I was asked to stab him. To stab him. And this was in front of the other people who were there? Uh, were you given a knife? Yes. And were you told what would happen to you if you didn't? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember what they said? This will happen to you. So, you either stab him or you'll be stabbed was about what it came down to. And listening to these accounts, you can understand why people believed them at the time. Justin Sledge concurs. I tell people, watch some of the people that they brought on some of these daytime talk shows in the 80s. You can watch them on YouTube and they tell very convincing stories. And we know that these memories can be implanted by psychiatrists. I have every reason to believe that they believed that they were victims of this kind of abuse. When you believe that you were the victim of this kind of abuse and you get on national television and tell millions of people that it happened, well, I think for most people, they would ask the natural question, why in God's name would they lie about this? Who's going to get on national television and talk about how they were forced to cook a baby or something for the devil? I don't know. The appearance of ritual abuse victims on daytime talk shows was ubiquitous and for fairly understandable reasons. Their stories were compelling, the details were lurid beyond all belief, and they obviously got ratings. The producers could probably even sleep well at night, thinking they were part of the solution, getting the word out about a secret threat to all the nation's children. Debbie Nathan also notes that the extreme hunger of daytime and tabloid news shows for interviews with these victims had the probably unintended consequence of dragging our old pal anti-Semitism into this modern iteration of the child sacrifice phenomenon as well. The cases that I looked at, very occasionally you would run across some anti-Semitism. For example, I think it was in Minneapolis, there were posters that were put up on some telephone poles, you know, accusing Jews of doing this. And then when the recovered memory therapy phenomenon got really big in the early 90s, which is connected with the daycare stuff in the sense that a lot of mainly adult women were going to therapy for things like depression or for bulimia or whatever, started remembering in therapy. They started remembering our so-called recovering memories of having been abused in satanic rituals. And there were some Jewish women who went on TV, like on Oprah, and started talking about how their families have been, I think the phrase was transgenerational satanic abusers, which is pretty dangerous because Jews starting in the Middle Ages were accused of killing Christian children in order to bleed them and use the blood to make matzah for Passover. And that led to pogroms or like these mass attacks on Jews that actually went all the way up until the early 20th century. I found some very nascent ones that were nipped in the bud in the United States, actually around 1919, among immigrant Poles accusing Jews of this. So this is a very old motif, and it's been very dangerous for Jews, and you started to see that a little bit with the daycare stuff, not too much, but then it sort of started to come out with the recovered memory people. 
there was this story that was told by a very prominent hypnotherapist, and he told the story at a conference, and it, and it just went rampant, which was that there was a teenage Jewish boy who was in Auschwitz or somewhere, some concentration camp, and was recruited by the Nazis to satanically abuse people, you know, because the Nazis were Satanists. In other words, like this really, really reticulated satanic ritual abuse theory with Nazis and concentration camps and Jews. And this guy's name was Dr. Greenbaum. They sent him to medical school or something, and then he implant these suggestions while torturing people. I mean, it just went on and on, but his name was always Greenbaum. And that was presented at a prestigious conference. You can still listen to the tape, right? We tracked down that appearance by the Jewish woman who talked about transgenerational abuse. Turns out it was an episode of The Oprah Show and not one that O probably wants on her highlight reel. My next guest was used also in worshipping the devil, participated in human sacrifice rituals, rituals and cannibalism. She says her family has been involved in rituals for generations. Rachel, who is also in disguise to protect her identity. You come from generations of ritualistic uh, abuse? Um, yes, my family has an extensive family tree, and they keep track of who's been involved and who hasn't been involved. And it's gone back to, like, 1700. I was born into a family that believes in this. Does everyone else think it's a nice Jewish family? Definitely. And you all are worshipping the devil inside the home? Right. There's other Jewish families across the country, it's not just my own family. Really? So what kinds of things, you don't have to give us the gory details, but what kinds of things went on in the family? Um, well, there would be rituals in which babies would be sacrificed and you would have to, you know... Who's babies? Um, there were people who um, bred babies in our family. No one would know about it. A lot of people were overweight, so you couldn't tell if they were pregnant or not. Or they would supposedly go away for a while and then come back. The other thing I want to point out, not all Jewish people sacrifice babies. I mean, no, no. it's not a very I think we kind of thing. Was it Oprah? Was it the first time you ever heard of Jewish people sacrificing babies? You didn't have any qualms about just airing this segment with no further analysis? No concern whatsoever that you're letting this poor deluded woman play into the hands of the worst anti-Semitic fantasies? Yeah, you witnessed the sacrifice, right? Um, when I was very young, I was forced to participate in that, in which I had to sacrifice an infant. And the, the purpose of sacrifice is to what? Is to bring you what? What are you sacrificing for? For power. And what's your mother doing in all of this? What's her role in all of this? What is, I'm not exactly what her role is. I haven't, you know, recovered all of my memories, but her family was extremely involved. Both of my parents brought me to it. And where is she now? She lives in the Chicago metropolitan area. She's on the Human Relations Commission of the town that she lives in. And she's an outstanding citizen. To the outside world, everything we did was proper and right. And then there were the nights that things changed. And what do you know? It wasn't just anti-Jewish racism that played into these panics, but also a more generic racism. And while we're at it, homophobia. Oh, joy. So this is one of the interesting things that watch how the panic notions develop. And I think two of the notions that develop, which are conspicuous, is that at some point during the panic, it was particularly blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls that were going to be targeted by the Satanists. And this really gets picked up and really gets run with. The way the legend would always work is they're going to be kidnapped and then sacrificed on Halloween. Again, this is also playing into the rise of stranger danger and that kind of stuff that developed in the, in the 80s as well. So you get this like weird 
racialized element where Aryan young girls, blonde hair, blue eyed, all American. There's an idea that somehow they're coming after the pinnacle of apex Caucasian people. I don't know what the right term for it would be. It's one thing for them to attack whatever kinds of kids, but if they come after the blonde hair, blue eyed ones, really, it's, you know, it's attack on European purity at its heart. You know, it's a curious way of framing it. You never hear about the Hispanic panic being a thing that like, they're going to get African-American kids, Hispanic kids or whatever, they're going to get the immigrant kids, which, you know, immigrant people are the most likely to be actually victims of human trafficking. It's really about what people are scared of. And what they're scared of is, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed girls getting assaulted. The other element, of course, is this is particular in the Midwest. I think it first develops in Ohio, where not only are all these people satanic, pedophile, murderer people, but they're all gay, which has never quite squared with the fact that they're allegedly like kidnapping blonde hair, blue eyed girls. The legends just don't line up in a good way. But thinking is never a prerequisite for any of this. But at any rate, there's a couple of cases in Ohio and I think in Michigan where the sheriff actually announced that not only are there a thousand professional Satanists operating in Ohio or whatever, but the majority of them are homosexual men. And again, we have to put this in the context of the mid to late 80s, where a very real conspiracy of silence, that is to say the institutional homophobia that was allowing the AIDS epidemic to rage basically unchecked. This is a situation where just being gay was horrifyingly difficult back then. And that could set you up to be a victim of the panic, because if you're a gay guy in Ohio, you might be one of the leaders of these satanic covens or whatever. It just shows you how overdetermined so much of this is. This also dovetail with the idea that people were putting stuff in candy and poisoning people. The Tylenol scare, which did in fact happen. This is the idea that people are putting razor blades and apples or candy or something like this. People forget that this was just what was in the air in the mid to late 80s. This is also the time period, right? If you look at big population centers like New York City, New York City was a very terrifying place to be in the 1980s. Many big cities were pretty terrifying places to be. Detroit was just like Mad Max in a lot of ways. It was really, really rough. And again, when you have this kind of societal breakdown, someone's to blame. Someone's to blame. And, you know, when there's fascists in power, it's almost always the immigrants or the Jews or something. But when it's the sort of rise of this moral majority, the answer is going to be it's the Satanists. They're trying to take down America. You know, that dovetails with the kind of Christian nationalism that would arise in the late 80s with people like Pat Robinson and people like that. And of course, have come roaring back with the QAnon cult, I suppose. And again, all of this was turbocharged by the media, especially the most notorious of all of the many, many salacious, voyeuristic, bottom feeding, supposedly news based programs of the era. Specifically, this doozy of a primetime report from 1988. Fun game. See if you can guess who the scurrilous, ethically challenged reporter is before the announcer tells you. Via satellite, we'll be asking the youngest person on Oklahoma's death row, just 17 when he killed in the name of Satan, why he murdered his own parents. And to Southern California, where we will ask the parents of children in the notorious McMartin Preschool why they claim their kids were satanically abused. And to London, where rock star Ozzy Osbourne will tell us why he feels he and heavy metal music are getting a bum rap. And to the state penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana, to ask convicted killer Charles Gervais why he thought the devil would award him 10,000 souls. The Investigative News Group presents the Geraldo Rivera Special. Devil Worship. Exposing Satan's Underground. The show starts off in the realm of at least the plausible, 
detailing a small number of murders committed by teenagers where occult or satanic motivations were certainly a factor. But then it promptly steers into the ditch when it returns to the studio. Is it the church's position that demonic possession is possible? It certainly is. There have been many cases down through the centuries, many in our own uh, decade, for example, of where the devil has actually possessed people and caused them to do many strange things. So you believe it's possible? It's, I believe not only is it possible, it is a reality in some very select amount of cases. Let's go to, to London for a quick in, uh, exchange with Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy, I'm, I'm glad you're on the program. I'll interview in greater detail in a couple of minutes. The one thing I have to ask you now, though, is, of course, the vast majority of your fans and the fans of heavy metal music are not Satanists. But every single kid whose case we know about, who committed a violent act in Satan's name, was also into heavy metal music. What's your response to that, Oz? Well, I don't really know. All I, all I do is um, make music, you know. I don't, I, don't, I don't sit down and purposely plan to freak everybody out. I mean... Okay, so the Ozman is probably not the most eloquent spokesperson to educate Geraldo on the correlation-causation mistake he's making. But honestly, does anyone not think Geraldo knows that, of course, kids who think they're killing for Satan will also be fans of the music with the most blatant satanic imagery, but that the metal doesn't cause the murders? The really greasy, cynical, manipulative stuff in this special comes in the form of certain clearly deliberate juxtapositions. For example, Geraldo looks into the presumed problem of people with odd religious beliefs belonging to the U.S. military. But, of course, after the lip service is paid to religious freedom, it becomes another opportunity to terrify middle America. In our investigation, we discovered that some of Satan's soldiers are also high-ranking officers in the United States military. Here at San Francisco's Presidio Army Base, for example, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino led a double life as a satanic high priest, and his phone answering machine boasts of his affiliation. This is the Temple of Set. The temple is the only international satanic religious institution fully recognized by the United States government. Indeed, the army does officially recognize Satanism as a legitimate religion and supplies chaplains with this guide for ministering to the satanic soldier. Unofficially, some charge that army bases have become sanctuaries for devil worshippers. Just last month, under a full moon, I took a midnight tour of the Presidio grounds they had uh, satanic rituals going on. There's an altar in there, and all of the graffiti on the wall would indicate that. Let's see what I can see. I can see a pentagram painted on the wall. I can see the words Prince of Darkness. On this wall, I see several inverted crosses and other obvious uh, satanic ritualistic paintings or symbols. Joseph, we've agreed to conceal your identity, but you are an officer in the United States Army. That's correct. And you were an officer in the United States Army during the time you were a member of this satanic organization. Yes. Did the authorities at the Presidio know that a satanic organization was active on their base during the time that you were a member? They were very much aware of it, yes. The present base commander, Colonel Rafferty, says that today at least... I know of no satanic activities whatsoever in this area. But that's not nearly as bad as this seamless segue. Satanism may be a constitutionally protected religion, but similar to another recent case at the United States Military Academy at West Point, here charges surface connecting ritual child abuse at the Presidio Daycare Center to the devil cult. It was here, parents and others allege, 
that as many as 60 young children were ritualistically abused by soldiers of Satan. Obviously, what follows is yet another tale of daycare-based satanic sexual abuse, which we don't need to go into here because it's so similar to the McMartin and other cases we're covering. But how fucking scummy was that? It's like a negative political ad, but far, far worse. These soldiers are supposed to protect our country, but how can they do that if they believe in a religion that creeps other people out? We have no evidence that these are anything but loyal servicemen and women. But what aren't they telling us? Plus, there was an unsubstantiated child abuse scandal we've tied to an imaginary form of Satanism. So why don't you make the horrible, unwarranted connections to these soldiers yourself? What? Oh, we're not saying. We're just saying. We're going to leave this special at this point, but it is worth noting that Geraldo scored an interview with the clearly distraught parents of the then still very much active McMartin trial. And it's also clear that no matter how much they may inadvertently have driven the panic, these are people who have been horribly damaged by this experience. Let's go now to the McMartin preschool parents who have gathered for us in Los Angeles. You recall that case, notorious case. I must state for the record, however, that the charges against most of the defendants have been dropped. Charges are still pending against two of them, however. We know that the parents and the children allege child abuse. What is much less known is that they say it was ritual abuse as part of a satanic cult. Please tell us why you believe this was abuse as part of a satanic cult. Well, the easiest reason to that question, Geraldo, is the fact when the children started talking, they started talking about robes and candles. You could see that it had to be satanic. It's very important in satanic religions to have a priest because they truly do believe in power. The truth about Satanism is they truly do use blood and they mix it with urine and then they also use the real meat, the real flesh. This is what makes Satanism true and this is what 1,200 molested kids in the city of Manhattan Beach have told the Sheriff's Department and it's an outrage that we are where we are with this case and these poor unprotected kids that have, uh, that's a third of the school system in the city of Manhattan Beach has been molested. We have eight preschools closed here. This is the child molestation capital of the world. We have more preschools closed in this city than any city this side of Detroit, and I'm not picking on Detroit. While we're on the topic, we were wondering why exactly daycares ended up being such a nexus for these sorts of stories. All of a sudden, there's these allegations coming down the pipe of people going into daycare centers or, you know, neighborhoods, satanic conspiracies of outsiders. Anytime you have accusations of outsiders doing this to children, particularly during this period that we're talking about, the 70s, early 80s, people were still very uncomfortable about not having their sister or their mom take care of their kid if they had to go out to work. And women weren't even supposed to go out to work. Like white middle-class women, it was still very frowned upon. You could look in all the women's magazines in the early 80s, and it's like, if you go to work and you put your child in a daycare center, Studies have shown that your children will be psychologically damaged, and they might be that way forever. And women leaving the home and going out into the world and making money was still a taboo back then for, I'm going to say white women, because we all know that there were people of color who were out there working for, you know, centuries, right? But this was a huge shift that was going on among middle class and upper middle class white women during this period. And so... To be able to find another reason to criticize public child care, I think, was very culturally attractive. It's hard to pin 
particular people to blame this on. It was too culture-wide. So, shows like the aforementioned were clearly designed to terrify and titillate, and they clearly worked as the panic stretched out for more than a decade. But having lived through it as a journalist and skeptic fighting the tide of public opinion, Debbie Nathan wants all of us, yours truly included, to understand, if we had been around at the time, we probably would have believed this too. I have to say that I can guarantee you that back in 1988, if you'd been around and you'd known me, you would have thought that I was a total asshole and not a friend to children. You would have believed this is what I'm saying. The difference between what I was looking at and what's going on now is that it was a completely across the cultural, political, and economic spectrum, this conspiracy theory. And now it's confined to a certain segment of the population that feels very polarized from the other segment. So it was much worse back then in a certain way. And I've seen this when I presented the book that a lot of younger people now, let's say people in their 30s or early 40s, they just think, this is crazy. I mean, people have laughed and giggled when I've talked about this when I presented like the last few years. And they just think, this is just Yahoo crazy stuff. But I can tell you that when this was going on, everyone believed it. Every single person was very rare to find anyone who evinced any, any uh, skepticism. Okay, all of that has been mortifying, and we're about to cover several more terrible aspects of this story, so I now want to cash in on that other ridiculous, silly, satanic panic-related thing that I mentioned I was holding in reserve. Let's do a palate cleanser with a brief foray into perhaps the greatest, most sincere, most Steve Buscemi, how-do-you-do-fellow-kids meme-appropriate video we've ever seen. Hell's Bells, The Dangers of Rock and Roll. First released in 1989, this is an absolute classic of the found-footage VHS genre and is freely available on YouTube to watch in its full three-plus-hour glory. Along with its sequel, 2004's six-and-a-half-hour-long Hellbells 2, The Toll Continues. Yes, before you ask, I have watched all nine-plus hours more than once. I have a problem. The man responsible is one Eric Holmberg, founder of Real to Real Ministries, that's R-E-E-L to R-E-A-L. It's very clever. A man sporting a mullet and mustache combination that tells you he understands your youthful rebellion, young people, and he's here to show you a better way. One of the most underestimated influences on young people today is the music industry. Studies show that between the 7th and 12th grades, the average teenager will listen to and watch 11,000 hours of rock music and rock videos, more than twice the time they will spend in class. As Dr. Alan Bloom noted in his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind, nothing is more singular about this generation than its addiction to music. Incredibly, despite this unprecedented power, and the mounting evidence that rock's influence can be less than positive, most people have never stopped to consider what is really going on in and through contemporary music. Why is music so powerful? How does it affect us? What is its source? And to where is it leading us? If you're guessing the answer to where the music is leading us is nowhere good, give yourself a star. Vladimir Lenin, the co-founder of communism 
and one of history's greatest experts on subversion and revolution said, one quick way to destroy a society is through its music. I don't want to shock you, but in fact, Lenin never said that. I know, I'm as surprised as you are. It seemed up until this point like this dude had a real grip on the facts. He even gives you do-it-yourself science projects like these. Given the materialistic philosophy that marks this present age, it's surprising that more attention has not been given to the many profound ways sound and different musical forms can affect the physical world. For example, research has found that shrill sounds of sufficient volume can congeal proteins in the liquid media. So a soft egg placed in front of a speaker at some of the louder rock concerts can midway through the concert become a hard-boiled snack for the weary headbanger. Does anybody have any salt here? Moving from proteins to animate objects, repeated experiments have shown that plants respond positively to classical forms of music, actually growing and flowering faster than if there was no music at all. Conversely, more dissonant forms of music, like heavy metal, can actually retard growth and even kill the plant. Of course, humans are much more complex than plants, but it still makes one wonder what this type of music might be doing to us. You're going to be shocked to learn that the egg thing is bullshit of the purest Ray Serene. Just total nonsense that he obviously never bothered to check. The second bit about plants growing better to classical music is more interesting. There's no definitive experiment in this because scientists have better things to do, but the Mythbusters did do a fairly controlled experiment that tentatively indicated sound might help plants grow, but it's any kind of sound. In fact, the plants exposed to classical didn't grow quite as robustly as did those exposed to death metal. Sorry, youth pastor Holmberg. But it's not all eggs and pretty flowers with this guy. He's mostly interested in keeping you from being swept up in Satan's great musical net. So, of course, he eventually brings things around to the then-ongoing Satanic Panic. Remember, though, that as an eternal spirit, Satan's focus is on eternity. His primary goal is to take you to hell with him. If Satan can get you to kill for him, great. That's icing on the cake. The cake, though, is to keep you away from the one who can save you from hell. To make you think that following Jesus is stupid, wimpy, or irrelevant. That real life is found in fun and doing whatever feels good. And what other art form is preaching this message with greater urgency and power than much of rock and roll? Now, some would say, so what? It's all just in fun. Nobody is supposed to take the message seriously. Well, that sentiment completely ignores both the nature of man and the power of music. It keeps getting worse for the unsuspecting rock music addicts. Turns out, music had recently taken a turn toward the unabashed worship of Lucifer himself. Like an invisible cancer that inevitably leads to death, so the satanic seed in rock and roll has culminated in a blatant obsession with the occult. Cryptic allusions to the devil and the music of blues artist Robert Johnson a generation ago have given place to an open worship of Satan and hell that comes complete with the symbols, liturgies, rituals, and messianic personalities that attend any religious order. No longer the stuff of small underground cults, 
millions of young people have been cocked in its evil sway. Beginning with the symbols associated with satanic religion, there is none more foundational than the pentagram, the five-sided star that is central to occult ritual. Next to the desecrated cross, there is also no other symbol more common to the rock music industry. Motley Crue, Slayer, Bebop Deluxe, Venom, Sam Kennison, Suicidal Tendencies, and ACDC are just a few examples where the satanic symbol is used. This guy never considers the completely reasonable possibility that these outlaws create the music and images they do specifically to freak out squares like him. Does anyone think Nikki Six did any deep reading into the occult before writing Shout at the Devil? Or, and I know this is a real stretch, did he just notice that teens think sexy leather chicks with flames and devil horns are cool and therefore generated a product to meet that market demand? I mean, has Holmberg never met a teenager? Shock without substance is pretty much their whole goddamned raison d'etre, and that has been the case for thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of years. The emergence of the waltz was enough to send polite society into a tizzy. The very existence of novels was going to rot the minds of young women who were their first consumers. Famously, Plato bemoaned the entitlement and unseriousness of the youth of his day, and no doubt Thog was horrified when his 16-year-old daughter Thogina came home to the cave having dyed her lips with red berries instead of purple berries before the winter festival in defiance of the clear ancestral dictates of the rock god Norsiglok. Before we get back to the gross stuff, we do want to mention that Mr. Holmberg, at the very end of his documentary, does offer us a taste of the sort of music that he and Jesus would appreciate it if the young people of today would listen to instead. God to teach us a new dance, a new way of living our lives. All creation moves in a cosmic dance before the Lord, her King. And the rhythms, the reason, the rhyme of the dance pulses within everything. And the universe wheels and whirls like a dervish in perfect seven-step time. The Lord made the dance, He taught her the steps, he causes the songs to shine. We must dance, 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 dance God's honor. We must yield all our steps unto the King. There's only one little problem. This sucks more than anything that has ever sucked before. Yes, we know we already went to this well, but it was too good to pass up. 